Welcome to MuggleCast episode 395. I'm Andrew. And I'm Eric. And I'm Micah. It's just the three of us this week, but we are going to hear many of you later in the episode. Not only do we have voicemails concerning the crimes of Grindelwald, we're also going to have some of our listeners call in. We haven't done a live call in in years. (laughs) So I'm a little scared, but I think it'll go well. We have a lot to get to today. Um, We originally weren't going to do an episode over Thanksgiving week, but as Micah rightly pointed out, we should do an episode right after the Crimes of Grindelwald comes out. That's kind of big news. Yeah. We thought we're so cool that we got the opportunity to see it early and do a review show. But, you know, got to give everybody the opportunity to go and see it on opening weekend. And then we can sit down because it's about the listeners, Andrew, isn't it? That I is mean, so really? true. That is this so is, true. This is all for them. And I'm going to stay positive the entire episode. I'm not going to say one negative thing about this movie. <laughs> we did get some people saying to us, wow, you are hard on Crimes of Grindelwald. And look, we're just, we're just sharing our feelings. But I think we've all had more time to sit with it. Micah and, or sorry, Eric and I have seen the film twice now. Micah has read the script. As well, I have torture I. yourself twice. I mean, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, so much for Micah's uh, commitment there. Yeah, geez. I actually, so we're, yeah. we're, I have lots of good things to say about it, actually. I enjoyed seeing it a second time, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, yeah. We're going to start with our box office predictions, because that's a big factor for WB, mm-hmm. at least. <laughs> <laughs> a few episodes ago, we all made predictions how much would the movie make over opening weekend in the u.s micah what did you say i said despite dumbledore despite nagini there's a lot of controversy around this film we've talked about it on the show i think certain people won't go see it because of johnny depp i also think the second film doesn't fare as well as the first so i'm going to go with 68 million dollars Thank you to Eric, by the way, for transcribing what we said. It was a few weeks so ago. weird. It was so weird hearing him recite what I transcribed him saying back in the. <laughs> it's it's the same thing as I thought. We were advanced enough on this show to play the audio clip, but well, apparently... I didn't want to trouble Andrew with it, buddy. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. Um, I said I agree. It's not going to hit the same amount that the first film did. I'll be a little more ambitious and say seventy-two million. Nagini, <laughs> this cracks me up. <laughs> Nagini alone now probably adds like three million to opening weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> that was the first quote I pulled, and I did a you know hyphen Andrew Sims behind it. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> So you said 72 million. I said, I'd like to believe the film will score less, even though they've thrown all this stuff against it. More people are excited about this film than were about the last one. And there's tons of general audience Johnny Depp fans who are going to come out. Maybe they're quiet, but they're going to come out. So I think the film will make $80 million in opening weekend. So Micah actually won. The movie well, made none six. None of us did. We all went over. Well, but you were closest. It made okay, 60- I'll take it. Two million over opening weekend. By comparison, the first Fantastic Beast movie made seventy-five o- over opening weekend. So that's a thirteen million dollar difference. That actually really surprised me. I didn't think it would make in the low sixties. There was a lot of pent up demand for the first Fantastic Beast movie after it had been so long since Deathly Hallows Part Two. So that was definitely a factor. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I'm really surprised by that number. Are you too? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It, it it performed under 
the the tracking poll that you mentioned four episodes ago the the tracking poll had it between 65 and 75 million mm-hmm. i think and it's and it's even under that so i actually can't account for it seems like just fewer people turned up yeah and even fewer general audience members that you'd expect to just come to you know the latest big blockbuster some listeners or some fans including uh some of our listeners were avoiding seeing it over opening weekend because of Johnny Depp. They kind of wanted to send a message. So that may have been a, a factor, not a $13 million factor, but maybe a million dollar factor. Well, that's your Nagini factor right there. It cancels oh, yeah. it out. The, the $3 million <laughs> extra that they would have gotten for having Nagini. Oh, no. What character is J.K. Rowling going to bring back for number three to try to... Uh, oh, don't ask that question. I don't want to know. <laughs> Uh, but overseas, it did do very well. It made 191 million. So all told, it made well over 200 million over opening weekend. Its budget was 200 million dollars. So uh, you know, it's you could argue it's made 253 million. But I've also heard that. So there's the production budget, which is 200 million. I've heard that studios spend that same amount just promoting the movie. So. There's maybe another $200 million in promotions across the globe. So, okay. Look, it's going to make its money back. But it is interesting that it didn't do as well as people were expecting over opening weekend in the U.S. Do you think, though, that as these movie totals come out for Crimes of Grindelwald and moving forward, that it would ever put the series in jeopardy? Or you think five films no matter what? Oh, that's a good question. Well, they might reconsider how much they're spending on the on the production budget and the promotional budget. But no, I don't think they're going to call up J.K. Rowling and be like, hey, we can't afford to do a fifth film. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard some friends who were really worried about that or like or, or they, they really do believe that the film is in jeopardy of or the series is in jeopardy now. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's possible. But I just hope that the message that they're receiving is the one that we're sending, which is, you know, like. Fans, the the hardcore fans that made the first film and literally every Harry Potter film a success, um, you know, we want sort of a, a different type of movie for the next game. Maybe they maybe they adjust what they're going for or make a film that just has a concrete audience. This one didn't. Um, yeah. You know, if even the hardcore fans are confused and general audiences can't keep up, who is this movie for? So hopefully, you know, they take them. They don't like feel too bad about it because this film already surpassed its budget you know, on the first three days alone, that's fine. It's doing fine. But I hope that they, you know, work to produce better results next time. I am surprised. I mean, not really because I was the closest to getting the opening weekend it's total. Price correct. is right rules, Micah. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's what I was saying. So we're, we're all, uh, we're all out of the running, but what, what surprises me about this is that the first film you're going back to the wizarding world and so yes that that's a huge draw as you mentioned andrew the the gap prior to with with deathly hallows part two being as long as it was with this film though you're actually going back to hogwarts and you get dumbledore and more of his story so i would think that in and of itself for potter fans would be a huge draw and i'm actually surprised that the number isn't larger than than what most of us uh thought it would be that is a good point um it, hogwarts wasn't a huge part of the film and i think a lot of people knew that 
So that may be why it wasn't as huge of a draw. Um, by the way, the first movie worldwide ended up making $814 million. Crimes of Grindelwald is probably going to do about the same. So they're not going to cancel these movies or, you know, nothing's really going to change. It, it, but it, it is going to look a little awkward and embarrassing if with each film the opening box office is in decline. What is the trend there, though? Because if you look at sequels to films, don't they generally not perform as well as the original? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, it depends on the on the series, but probably with the fifth movie, there's going to be a big tick up because oh my god, it's the grand finale. How's this going to end? Yeah, climactic battle, Voldemort yeah. and Dumbledore, or uh, Grindelwald and Dumbledore, that kind of thing. Um, we mentioned the Marvel movies, which I think the sequels, you know, sometimes surpass the original. But a good example I saw on BoxOfficeMojo.com was uh, The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies, which was the third one in the Hobbit trilogy. I don't know if that was like, I don't know what the production budget or the um, promotion budget on that was, because it seemed like there were like no billboards, no banners. The film was just allowed to fail. But the third and final film of that trilogy just did absolutely the worst by a big sum of money. Yeah. A lot of people say that just wasn't a good story they were doing, and it shouldn't have been three movies. That well, yeah. that franchise was originally going to be two, then they turned it into three. But yeah, um, okay. And by the way, we did a Patreon poll a few weeks ago as well, and the majority of supporters believe that the movie would make sixty-five to seventy million. So everybody in general was wrong. We did mention reviews. Um, there have been mixed reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's averaging. Uh, God, is it down to 40%? Is that right? <laughs> oh, man. Let me look. Oh, yeah. It's sitting at 40% on the tomato meter. That's that's pretty bad. Um, the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is a lot more generous. It's at 70%, and it received a B-plus cinema score. This is the score. So people um, ask moviegoers after they see the movie, hey, what do you think of the movie? And overall, the movie scored a B-plus, the first movie, for reference got an a so um yeah the, the critics have been very mixed if you look at rotten tomatoes it it's paints a pretty grim picture but look some people did like it even critics like cnn's review was positive usa today's usa today's review was positive other prominent outlets um i know people on hypable were pretty mixed about it one of our writers mccall she wrote a great piece on how dumbledore was um the standout in this film and i think a lot of people would agree with that that was one of the bright points uh for everybody i thought the uh the zulu was the standout quite honestly but well, why don't you write an article micah on how the zulu has it? stolen the franchise <laughs> will i get real estate on hypable real estate you mean like money no like will you post the article if i write it if it's really good yeah well, one thing I did want to say, though, because going back to your point about how some found the episode that we did last week to be a little bit on the negative side, we're we're a Potter podcast, and, and we're going to dive deep into the actual story. And I think if there are some issues that we're taking with how the story is developing, I think that's fair. I don't think we were overly critical of the movie itself. I found it to be an entertaining movie from start to finish. I know I mentioned that uh, unless you feel differently and, and you both saw it a second time. It, it's just the nature of, of what we do. Yeah. Right. It, 
the second time I saw it, I came out of the theater thinking it was a masterpiece. Seriously. Like really? That, that was, yeah. No, that was the word that my brain presented to me. And I was like, because the second time watching it, I don't know what changed. I still had problems with whatever I had problems with the first time, but I just didn't care. Like I was able to appreciate the, it felt like it flowed much better. I, I, I don't understand. And like, it doesn't mean that any of the thoughts that I presented on last week's episode were wrong or invalid or that I disagree with myself. I don't, but something about watching it the second time changed it. And I could kind of see, maybe it's because I felt like part of the in club knowing the story. Yeah. Uh, Cause like, then it's less, I mean, it's less of a shock, but also once you know the story, you can like see why only certain amount of screen time was given to certain threads. I, I think, I think that's right. And I experience this with every movie I see. You're kind of overwhelmed the first time you see any movie because you don't know what to expect. I feel this way with Star Wars in particular because mm-hmm. there's a lot happening. And then this, so the second time seeing Crimson Grindelwald, I knew what was coming so I could kind of pace everything in my mind better. I'm like, okay, Dumbledore said that because this is happening later. And mm-hmm. oh, I get another look at the Mirror of Erised scene. Let me study this more closely. Um, And then, like, the end part, I was talking in the last episode uh, about how my mind just went numb. Um, (laughs) My mind still went a little numb, but not as numb, (laughs) because I was able to follow this info dump a little better. So, um, and I I will also say that both times I saw the movie, I didn't think there was a slow point at all. Like, it moves very fast. I, it, it feels like I'm sitting there for about 90 minutes. When mm-hmm. in reality, it's two hours and 20 minutes. And that's that's a good thing. Because one of the worst, worst things that can happen when you're seeing a movie is you're like, oh, my God, is this over yet? But mm-hmm. I just did not feel that way with Crimes of Grindelwald, to J.K. Rowling's credit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I've yet to read the script book, but I did receive it. And I'm excited for all the insights. Uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the insights that you and Micah both gleaned from reading it. Because you do get some answers that aren't made clear in the film even just something like as uh the year in which a scene or flashback occurs mm-hmm. yeah so. definitely and andrew did you read the script book before going to see it the second time or had you not gotten it yet i hadn't gotten it yet so i saw it thursday night and actually so the script book came out friday so i got home thursday night and i was like all excited after seeing it again <laughs> and at 11 p.m central i downloaded i bought a digital copy of the screenplay even though i was receiving a physical copy during the day on Friday because I couldn't wait. I wanted to dig back into it. I wanted to see what J.K. Rowling wrote in this. That's how you got that article up so fast. I was wondering because my copy <laughs> didn't even come to like 1 p.m. and Hypable had an article about it three hours earlier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was sitting there on my iPad making notes. It's like, Brooklyn, sorry, we can't go to bed yet. I got to finish <laughs> reading the script. It's also very easy to read a script. Like You can do it pretty quick. It took maybe two, two and a half hours to read it. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah it, it is a very, very quick read. And and speaking of books, do you think that the fact that we don't have a book to compare this to leads to our criticisms or maybe leads to a lack of criticism? Just because if you go back to the Potter series, anytime a movie came out, we knew the plot going in. We mm-hmm. knew what to for the most part, expect. Obviously, things were going to be cut along the way. But by and large, we knew the characters. We knew what was going to happen. And so there was an expectation coming in 
Whereas now we have no real basis of comparison. I think the way I think of it is the first time that super, super hardcore fans such as ourselves and all our friends who went and saw it with us and all that went and saw it, we were trying to figure out how it fit into the large picture. And everything that had to do with the film fitting into the large picture felt out of left field, jarring, not well set up. The second time we saw the film, you know, I, for one, was able to see it as a standalone or or my brain focused on, okay, this film has its own entity, what's going on, what works, what doesn't. And I found that largely that view of it worked. So that might be a difference between uh, the Harry Potter films, which had the books first, where, you know, we were judging it basically as an adaptation, whereas this film, like, I still can't see those films as standalone. I can't. And with crimes of with uh, Fantastic Beasts, I'm forced to. So mm-hmm. it is it is different. There is something different going on there. Yeah, because for example, if you take the big reveal at the end of the movie with Aurelius Dumbledore, would yeah. it have been an easier pill to swallow if you had had a book, The Crimes of Grindelwald, where throughout more of those little clues were being laid throughout the course of the story, and you had a 300, 400 page book to be able to really fully comprehend, which in my mind is what J.K. Rowling has, right? She probably has hundreds and hundreds of pages that Mm. never made it into this film. And so to have that available to you makes a huge difference, I think, versus just going and seeing it in theaters and knowing that there's probably some information that was left on the cutting room floor that would have made this all a little bit more easier to to buy yeah well and that's this is why the fandom is so alive right now because we had no clue what to expect and suddenly it's dropped on us very quickly i love how alive the fandom is right now for better or for worse people are speculating like crazy over that credence twist and it reminds us of the order of the phoenix the half-blood prince days when we didn't know what's ahead so everybody should really appreciate the fact that this does feel like we're in the mid-2000s again yeah yeah definitely but there there are certain things that would never happen if this was a book series though i mean certain certain bad things that the film fails to convey that would not happen if it were a book Mm -hmm. i I think part of the surprise uh, of this film is just how many subplots are tried to be woven in in a in a short time and based on even the stuff that was in the trailer that was cut from the film, like remember the ball scene? There was like a costume ball or everybody was formal and it would look yes. like it was a ministry. I saw that this morning. There was a close shot of Lita. Where would that be in this film? Like the film as we know it, it got filmed, but the film as we know it, I don't see anywhere in the story where there could be a ball. I and no like clue. that made it so far into the film, far enough to be shot. So there's clearly so much else going on that was maybe even almost in this movie. And in a book, it would just, it would, there would be sort of a place for it. Whereas with a movie, you're constantly running up against runtime. You're, yeah. And, and, and all of like the, what's the word? Like, just like the flow of each of the, the plots. So a book would have, even the question of, I saw on, on Facebook, what makes Lita Lestrange a taker? Because Queenie in the first movie says to Nude, oh, she's a taker. You need to give her, honey. Um, you know, it's it's unclear because that level of character development is not achieved before Lita dies in this film. So 
there's all these kind of open questions that I think would just be better addressed in a book. You'd be able to get a little bit more backstory or at the very least character motivations, which do not come across as easily over film unless the film uses exposition to convey it. And the film had plenty of exposition as it was. Yeah. One thing I want to do, speaking of that scene that was left on the cutting room floor of that ball that Lita Mm -hmm. is at or some fancy event Um, we need to talk about all the things, like all the unanswered questions. Like I'm looking at the cover of the Crimes of Grindelwald screenplay right now, and there's a lock with Nicholas Flamel's initials on it. Like, what is that? Is it that box that he opened? I don't, that doesn't seem totally what it could be referencing. The Sorcerer's Uh. Stone is front and center on the cover, Mm -hmm. but it, it was a blink and you'll miss it moment in the movie. So was there more there that was originally in it? We see the blood pack item, by the way, on the cover. So we know Amazing. what that is, at least. Yeah. Um, but then there's other questions, and we'll, and we'll go into that in the future. So getting back to our doc here, Eric, you had mentioned something kind of interesting. What beast did you remember, speaking of left on the cutting room floor, what beast did you remember that was cut? So I think I predicted movie three right now i think i think that i stumbled upon something that might help us predict a future fantastic beasts film um i was partially wrong right from the get-go because you know how in the movie it's not really stated what like what the boat is that lita is on and and some people were really wondering if that was like the titanic um because it's a british airline or a british maritime uh you know waterliner going from britain to america people were questioning according to the script book the boat sank in 1901 uh so not 1912 like the titanic but the titanic hit an iceberg and so when we were thinking about it the second time i watched the film i was like what if this really is the titanic it could be and then i remembered on the very first fantastic beasts blu-ray there's a special feature called meet the beasts and it's only four minutes long because all the special features, there was maybe 30 minutes total on that movie. But um, they did all this concept art of beasts that either almost made the cut of the first film or in general, the VFX uh, guy, Pablo Grillo, says, we did a, a bunch of beasts um, that we kind of worked with to try and illustrate beasts that could have naturally evolved in the world. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But keeping it short, there's an iceberg beast. And I remember seeing this. It it goes by real quick because they're doing storyboards. And there's a picture, and it just goes by quick. But I remember this because this was my favorite beast when I saw this uh, behind the scenes. And it's a beast where above the water is like a fin, but it looks like, you know, an actual iceberg that you'd find just roaming the Atlantic. And underneath is like a giant whale creature. And it's just like J.K. Rowling, in my opinion, to make, you know, a naturally occurring thing turn out later to have been a magical thing. So if the boat leader was on, even though it's not the Titanic, was hit by an iceberg and that's why it sank, then I bet a beast was involved. Hmm. And we've seen it because the creators of these films have already designed the concept art. And I think it's just like J.K. Rowling to hide like an Easter egg like that in to a special feature of a previous film that, that's corvus right that's corvus <laughs> the, that, the iceberg you know beast ice that beast? beast that beast probably saved corvus because if it eats him corvus can survive in the belly of the whale because there's air in there oh my god we figured it out it's moby dick it's moby corvus 
So <laughs> I, I think it's kind of a coincidence um, that they dreamed up an iceberg beast. It sounds like they dreamed it up without J.K. Rowling's input. So possibly, uh, but yeah. but if they decided to work this iceberg beast into the explanation into the boat story that could help tie this fantastic beast title into what's happening in this story because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know sometimes we we still go well why is this called fantastic beast this has very right. little to do with newt's book right. that could help <laughs> yeah it could and if you read the uh the forward in the script book by david yates he says that he first got the crimes of grindelwald script back in 2016 which is when the first film came out now when in 2016 he received the script maybe that informed some of this artwork that that was put into play yeah mm-hmm. well i think jk rowling probably went into a meeting and was like here's the general rules for fantastic beasts in my magical world um i mean that that's because they because david yates is seen talking in that same featurette about how they wanted to make them realistic and believable from the start so they probably created sort of a catalog of potential beasts that are all like ideas probably based directly on jk rowling conversations but i like the idea of whale of the whale saving baby corvus but one thing people are 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 pointing out (laughs) is that if credence really is a dumbledore um they're still corvus still needs to be alive because this film states that lita is the last lestrange or the last of a of her line and it and she dies and eventually, there does need to be a Rabistan and Rodolphus Lestrange. So right. Corvus has to come back, or Lead is not really dead, in order for there to be a Bellatrix Lestrange marrying Rodolphus and Rabistan. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I there needs to, away. There definitely needs to be connections. There are some family trees out there on uh, the Harry Potter wiki. There's some good Lestrange family trees, but none of them connect all the bloodlines into one. And you need that <laughs> to, to connect all the Lestranges. <laughs> it's an excellent we... point, though, Eric, that you raise about the future Lestranges that we all know, because they wouldn't be able to exist if Corvus was, in fact, the last male member of the Lestrange family and perished in this uh, shipwreck. Where the other thing to bring up, too, is Yusuf. And I know we touched a little bit on this in our, our previous episode. Why would he still be beholden to an unbreakable vow if Corvus is, in fact, dead? Mm. So right. that would add to your argument. Yeah. Yeah. Something's going on here, guys. We've been, we've been, we've been hoodwinked, but in a good way, in like a good J.K. Rowling way. One other thing I just wanted to bring up, and this was going back to when we were talking a little bit earlier about Lita, it made me think of something when you mentioned the the wedding scene that yeah. seemed to have been omitted. And you can both correct me because you've seen the movie twice now, but Newt mentioned something to Tina when they're talking in the ministry that is in the script book that I don't think I remember hearing in the actual film, but I could be wrong. He says... To her, it was a mistake in a stupid magazine. My brother's marrying Lita, June the 6th. I'm supposed to be best man, which is sort of mildly hilarious. Yes, he does say, I remember him saying June 6th, and I only heard it the second time, and it's the it's the very standard at this point, Eddie Redmayne mumble. So it happens <laughs> Did too fast. Did he say that he was going to be best man, though? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, I remember that, too. Okay, never yeah. mind. Then. Yeah. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Bombas. Bombas is totally re-engineered socks with comfort innovations that add up to one way more comfortable pair of socks. Two years of research and development led to multiple improvements of the sock design, performance, and comfort, including an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and feels like a hug around your foot, a cushioned footbed, stay-up technology, and super soft cotton. They honestly feel like your feet just got a massage. And whatever you love to do, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life as you do it. They were created for runners, power walkers, podcasters, wizards, and overall lovers of everyday comfort. I've worn several pairs of Bombas to work, and it's amazing how comfortable they are compared to normal dress socks. Your feet feel comfortable all day long, and they have some really great designs for listeners to choose from. But the part I love most about Bombas is that for every pair purchased, one is donated. Socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters, but you can't donate used socks. That's why Bombas donates one brand new pair of socks for every pair they sell. To date, they sold and donated over 9 million pairs of socks. You know, the weather is getting cold outside. It's the holiday season. What better way to make a difference? Buy a pair of socks for somebody in your life and also make a difference for somebody who really needs it. Now, MogulCast listeners get 20% off their first order. All you have to do is go to bombas.com slash MogulCast. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com, and you'll get 20% off your first order. So a couple of things I noticed on my second watch. First of all, and this is something else, uh, on a, cons- this is another unanswered question. The Deathly Hollows, like those were a very big part of the first movie, and even in the promotional material for the second movie, we're seeing the Deathly Hollows a lot. And yet in the movie, there's really no references to the Deathly Hollows. I thought there was zero. But then on the second watch, I noticed that um, when Lita is at Hogwarts present day, she opens up a desk, I assume her old desk, and there is a Deathly Hollow symbol inside of it. I don't know if that was supposed to mean something or the production designers just wanted to get it in there just for kicks. But I did find it interesting that that was, as far as I know, the sole reference to the Deathly Hallows in this movie. Where was it? I was looking for it. Somebody said that it was on the desk and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. But the second time I saw it, I couldn't find it. She opens the desk and... It's etched into the desk. There's a lot of symbols, so it doesn't necessarily stand out unless you happen to catch it. Like What direction? Because I was f- predominantly focused on the lower right, and there's the letters MN, like MuggleNet, so I was like really happy. But <laughs> I, I don't. that was what I saw. I didn't see the death. I was looking for the Deathly it's Hallows, there. and I couldn't find it. It's there. I mean, I can't remember where, but yeah, I just okay, okay. centered. But yeah. It's yeah. funny you say that, though, because... There is sort of that moment between Grindelwald and Lita in the mausoleum where th- there's a familiarity because doesn't he say, oh, this one I know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I wonder, is there a little bit of history going on there? Mm. Yeah. He, and he has her number, right? He's like the least loved by wizards and friends alike and all, all that other thing he says to her and killing her when she attacks him or presumably killing her, allegedly killing her, pisses or upsets him so much that he literally says, I hate Paris. <laughs> yeah, I think it's after he had to kill her. He was like, I hate Paris. This didn't go the way I wanted it to. So I think there was definitely a plot there. Mm. I thought that was a classic 
Johnny Depp moment. I hate Paris. It just right. I felt like I was watching Jack Sparrow in that yeah. moment. <laughs> I was just gonna add to that that I know we're staying positive this episode, but I didn't really like that line at all. Yeah, it didn't really fit with like Crindle Grindelwald, right? Like, was it supposed to be funny or lighthearted? But there was no place for that because he just killed Lita. It was a- that's why it works for me. Like, as far as it's specific, if we can, if we tie him saying that to the fact that he killed Lita, we can infer that he didn't really want to kill Lita, which infers that there's more to Lita than we saw in the film. Yeah, that's fair. But it's a very movieism of just like, and he just killed a bunch of people. Like, he shouldn't be quipping or making jokes like that. Like, they're still fighting the demon upstairs. But he's that demented. Maybe that's the reason why. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I just read that scene as things aren't working out as I intended. Yeah. Right. Your oh, next I point, Paris. though, Andrew, I really like it. And I want to expand upon it once you. Uh... Yeah. So actually related to what we're just talking about here. Um, and this is a benefit of reading the movie or watching it again. You get to see the the setups earlier in the movie that are foreshadowing something later on. Dumbledore at the beginning of the movie or not the beginning of the movie, when Theseus and the Ministry come to Hogwarts, they uh, start heading out, and then Dumbledore tries to warn Theseus about going to one of Grindelwald's rallies. He said, Dumbledore said, if if one happens, don't try to break it up. Don't let Travers send you in there. If you ever trust me, and then he kind of trails off. Is this because Dumbledore knew he'd be manipulating people at the rally? And to the point where they would not be able to control themselves, kind of like what may have happened to Queenie or Lita. I think he knows it's a trap. And there's another line similar to that later on in the film when Nicholas Flamel is talking with Professor Ulele and Nicholas Flamel says exactly what, quote, he said would happen. And he's referring to what he had just seen in the crystal ball. And my question is, who is he? Dumbledore. So has Dumbledore not necessarily seen the future, but is, is what does he know? Like, how is he so aware of what is going on that he not only tells Theseus, but clearly he's had a conversation prior to that with Flamel. I'll sort of play devil's advocate and say, it's sort of, predictable that Grindelwald after being imprisoned will, will want to call a rally, um, you know, and will want to basically go back to what he was said to be doing in the first fantastic beast film where he's persuasive and his arguments for the greater good. That was well known at that point. Uh, so he must've held rallies before. And it just makes sense in the future that now that he's out of prison and has had a couple months to recoup that he would do a rally. So maybe it's not, special insight that Dumbledore has but it feels like it especially when he says to Theseus oh you know just on the off chance that Grindelwald calls a rally uh don't go so it does feel very magical and and special well first of all we know that Dumbledore knows that Grindelwald is a manipulator but this group that has formed um, the Rolodex of members you know are in this book with a phoenix on it and by the way the script book does confirm what we what what you can kind of catch a glimpse of in the movie there's a phoenix on the cover of this book where professor Eulalie is inside of and um another thing the screenplay revealed and i'm kind of jumping ahead here but um 
The screenplay mentions that in this book, there's a page for Dumbledore as well. In the movie, you do not see Dumbledore's page. You might if you like pause the movie, but obviously we can't do that when we're watching it in a theater. You can When you do see Professor Eulalie, if you look closely, you can see her name, but it's very small. So anyway, we know that Dumbledore is in this book. My guess is that it's already well, that they have this well-established group that is uh, trying to fight Grindelwald. And it may have been around for a while because maybe Dumbledore knew that this was coming. Yeah. And when I say moment, I'm not referring only to what happens at the end of uh, Crimes of Grindelwald, but also what is going to happen in a couple more movies. Yeah, it, it is fun to entertain the idea that Dumbledore is already establishing a secret like society of or a network of people. I mean, Dumbledore has always been a networker. I think book seven said that he was right. I mean, he met Nicholas Fulma when he was still a student at Hogwarts. Um, and Nicholas Flamel was 480 years old or whatever. And, you know, super, super important and prominent still. So like Dumbledore made all these contacts long ago. It makes sense. He do basically like an order the Phoenix kind of thing for Grindelwald, but it's interesting that he can't really move against Grindelwald directly because of the blood pack. So I think this was probably the next best thing. Mm. So the order of the Phoenix is in fact, even older than <laughs> we presumed it to be. Well, I don't necessarily believe that this is the order of the Phoenix, but it's on the book. A phoenix Phoenix is is on the book, yeah. I would be disappointed if J.K. Rowling is wedging in another reference. Like, do something with a phoenix, sure, but let's not do something with the Order of the Phoenix title exactly. Let's come up with something new. The members of the phoenix. The gang (laughs) of the phoenix. (laughs) The posse of the phoenix. When the next movie title is revealed to be... Fantastic Beast, The Order of the Phoenix. What are you going to do? I'm going to cry. <laughs> Fantastic Beast, The Book of the Phoenix. That mm. I, or something with Phoenix would be There's gonna there's gonna be Phoenix in the title at some point, right? Movie 3, yes. movie 4, movie 5. I mean, this Guaranteed. movie was all about birds. <laughs> Fantastic Birds, The Order of the Phoenix. I'll tell you what though, we were talking about this box office earlier. I meant to say this earlier. Uh, I don't think Grindelwald's name is going to be in a title again. Oh, I hope not. Let's get let's have gotten that over with. And I, I don't know. Uh, just because I I think the title isn't helping the box office, and Americans are very weary about Johnny Depp. A lot of Americans are overseas. I think he's more well received than he is in America. But look, they didn't have a premiere in the U.S. for this movie. Why? May have had uh-huh. to do with Johnny Depp. That is surprising, though, because didn't they say that you could win a trip to the New York premiere? They were, yes. I w- maybe was... they sent that winner to Paris after all. There was an LA premiere. No. I was pretty sure. No. Huh. And movies. Well, it would have been New York, not Los Angeles. I mean, hey, keeping yeah. it consistent with the sweepstakes. Well, the sweepstakes and the locations of the films. Well, I wonder what the person who won the trip to the premiere then in the U.S., I wonder what they Yeah, they sent him to Paris. Won. Yeah. I also saw that they recently gave away a walk-on role in the next movie. Yeah. Yeah. You Did get you to win? Be Creedence's, you, you get to be Dumbledore's other brother. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the. Uh, I want to be a person in that in that book. Oh, yeah. That's like a place of prominence. That's a slow burn, dude, because you'd have like a really cool role that nobody ever finds out about. Right. Flamel, it's as bad as we thought. Quick, we need to get the order together again. The Order of the Phoenix? 
Yes. It's what the movie is named after. Okay, so a couple other things I noticed on my second watch. We were debating in the first episode what was going on in the mirror of Erised. Dumbledore looks into the mirror and sees younger him and Grindelwald making the blood pack. So I'm wondering if his greatest desire is to undo the the blood pack. Does that make sense? Because, and we'll get to this in a little bit, in the script, J.K. Rowling really highlights just how painful this whole Grindelwald situation is for Dumbledore. Yeah. And one other thing I noted about that in the script book is that this is actually happening in the Room of Requirement, which I would not have known just watching the film. Oh, it says oh, the, that? I missed the that. The script says it. Yeah, oh, wow. the script book says that. That means this is a game changer. This is bigger than Minerva McGonagall being in this movie for me. Um, because it means that Dumbledore explicitly knew about the Room of Requirement through the entire Potter series. And he previously joked about it once to Harry, but it is unclear, especially in Order of the Phoenix when they're doing Dumbledore's army. It's unclear, like, it's clear he supports the notion of that, but it's way unclear if he knows anything about the room requirement. I think it changes your read of the books in a big, big way. Hmm. If he knows about that room. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. What else does he use that room for, do you think? (laughs) crying over Grindelwald. I require <laughs> Grindelwald. Where is he? Okay, so that that's that's what I got for my second watch. I may actually go see it a third time over Thanksgiving because I don't really have anything else to do and I got a movie we, theater close to me. So Yeah, uh, bring the gross up from 62 million to 62 million 15. <laughs> I'm going to do it myself. Take the family. <laughs> I'm going to see the movie a million times just so I can win our little bet that we made. <laughs> actually, it's too late. Opening weekend's over. Micah, what did you? What else did you gleam from the screenplay? Mm-hmm. I mentioned the Ford by David Yates. It's it's a nice read. He talks about just the world overall and and how he was introduced to the crimes of Grindelwald. Nothing worth calling out, but just thought that it was cool that it was there. One question I had reading that opening breakout scene from the prison is the chupacabra ends up biting Spielman. And I was just curious as to whether or not that was going to have any effect on him long term. We don't really see him much until the end of the movie, but oh, well, we do see him in the um, in the ministry uh, when Newt is sort of being interrogated. But I, I just wondered if that would have any impact. Maybe the Wald can have some sort of additional control over him. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's slowly turning into a chupacabra. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the effects of being bitten by a, a chupacabra are. You know what I will say that I loved seeing the film a second time? Jacob has still a little scar from his his Mertlap bite. Oh. Um, you can only really see it in the very first scene where he's under the love potion. And right, it's like a close-up shot when the love potion's gone. And you can see it's like three little, like somebody took an eyeliner brush and just did a little kind of thing on him and it's still it's the Mertlap bite is on his neck right right in the same place and I I loved that that was still like you know that's kind of a a scar now basically we have a lot of people listening live right now on Patreon and Nolan says was it ever explained why the hell that Chupacabra was even in the cell with Grindelwald that is surprising because it's like why would they let him have a pet in there 
Yeah. I mean, it doesn't read like a pet in the beginning, beginning, but that's only because it's actually not really Grindelwald. If that Chupacabra was next to Grindelwald, it would not have been able to contain its shit. That that thing was in love with him. Yeah. And you would have assumed that Grindelwald loved that pet too, because he has him in there, but then he throws him to his death. It was designed to be a security measure. This is my guess. It was designed to be a security measure that unfortunately Grindelwald with his silver tongue and charming personality was able to fit right through. And also the other thing is that Grindelwald was graves for at least a year or something. He knows all the ministry's protocols. Like there's, there's no way he didn't already prepare for the contingency of being interrogated by U S wizards. So it's no surprise to me in general that he figured out how to escape. Mm Mm-hmm. It would have been interesting if the Chubacabra helped him escape. Yeah. Like, I would have been more into that, because this is Fantastic Beasts. It's sort of more of a newt thing to do, though, is to use your beast's, like, specific nature to your advantage. Like, if Grindelwald True. started doing that, I would call, like, bullshit on it, I think. <laughs> but I feel like there was an explanation for that somewhere. Might have to take a look after after getting through this section, but... One of the other things that, that drew my attention, and actually there's a, another related point to it a little bit uh, further on here, but in the hideout, once uh, Grindelwald makes it to Paris, he tells Nagel to go to the circus and give Credence a note to start him on his journey. And I completely missed this the first time I saw the film. I don't know if the second time you both saw it, that you were able to... Uh, identify this scene but it just makes me believe more and more that Grinewald is playing Credence yeah mm. yeah he, he deliberately says set the plan in motion and you don't see him give whatever to Credence but the, the scene where you see Credence at the circus I think for the first time he brings a note to Nagini and says it's tonight we got to get out of here tonight so when I was watching the film a second time I tried to read the note and it is kind of obscured by his like right thumb but I think it says meet blank under the bridge um, or it's the address of his supposed mother the elf woman Looking at the film, the only thing you can guess that, like, the point is, is they needed Credence to go to the, uh, what, what, what is she called in the, in the script? Is it like the nursemaid or, or midwife or the assistant or? She has the name. Irma. Trying to look it up. Irma. Yes. Irma. So Grindelwald wanted Credence to go to Irma. Irma would presumably not tell him everything in the first five seconds, the only seconds that they have together. And then because Grimson was uh, supposed to kill her, but they needed credence there so that he could say he missed. Um, so, so it accomplishes a couple things because credence gets to meet the only person who really knows who he is uh, or might. And then she's also simultaneously in one fell swoop silenced from telling him more. Like now Grindelwald, now Credence believes that he is somebody important and also Grindelwald gets to control the narrative now that she's dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's too many things that you're able to pick up on that could lend it to the belief that Grindelwald is really manipulating Credence, especially once we get to the end. I mean, he's essentially putting all of this into motion 
to lead up to Credence and others showing up at the mausoleum later on in the film. And it's 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 taking away anybody who could potentially disprove the fact that uh, Credence is is a Dumbledore, right? That mm-hmm. that woman, Irma, may hold much more information than what she was able to give Credence in that very, very short period of time. Uh, but speaking of Credence, later on in the script book, it's mentioned that, and there's this very brief scene of him and Nagini walking through a market, and it's just prior to them being up on the roof and and him feeding the bird. He actually takes bird steed from the <laughs> market, and I didn't notice this at all in, in the film, wondering, again, if, if this is something either of you saw. I can't remember. I remember him interacting with Seed, maybe to feed the bird, but I don't remember if I see him. We see him actually pulling bird seed. I will say the script, the script book, once again, just like with the first one, it didn't have any deleted scenes in it. So this has to be very close to the final cut of the film. They're doing that on purpose. So I, I would guess that it is there, Micah. It, it might not just be very obvious. Yeah, I don't remember seeing it. I, I remember seeing that it was a marketplace, but the camera pretty quickly cuts to Grimson following them. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't know. That would have been he's he's must Ezra Miller must be like the world's most accomplished uh, uh, pickpocket there, you know. Right, and again, we're presented with that scene where Credence is is feeding this bird that looks very much like the baby raven that we see in the flashback scene, but turns out to be a phoenix. However, coincidentally, not long after that, we see Grindelwald just kind of hanging out on the rooftop. So it, it there's a lot of suspicious activity going on here. Mm-hmm. That bird, and the script book heavily implies this, <clears throat> the bird that Credence has mm. at the end of the movie when he's with Grindelwald, is the same bird. It's referred to as a chick in the screenplay. Is the same chick as the one that we're just talking about here. So that, to me, tells me Grindelwald is not lying. That Credence really is Aurelius <laughs> Dumbledore. The one thing I saw, because I can't explain the Phoenix either. If If Credence isn't a Dumbledore... I don't know how a phoenix just appears to somebody. Um, but the people who had pointed out that the phoenix is only ever around when Grindelwald is not too far away fits in with a muggle mail that we got from Nicole uh, and uh, Doug. And both of them said, uh, we'll read it, the full email later. But regarding the chick, I found this amazing. Uh, she said, if it is a real phoenix, I don't think it's coming to credence at all but rather to Grindelwald because he has Dumbledore's blood running through his veins. Interesting. So if the blood pact that they have kind of mixes their blood or means that Dumbledore and Grindelwald's blood is now the same blood or fused blood of some sort, hypothetically Grindelwald would be able to get a Phoenix if he figured out what the, myth of needing to be quote in need meant and that is the first and only thing that i think can explain why grindelwald could continue with this sort of manipulation if credence isn't really a dumbledore i i will add to that by pointing out that the chick does not turn into a phoenix until grindelwald throws the bird up into the air yeah so 
Credence isn't doing anything to make that turn into a phoenix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that line from Dumbledore in the movie, he says, well, I've always felt an affinity with the great magical birds. There's a story in my family that a phoenix will come to any Dumbledore who is in desperate need. They say my great-great-grandfather had one, but that it took flight when he died never to return. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful line because we know Fox sings and cries and then disappears forever once Dumbledore dies. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I actually did a little research into that. I can't remember if I brought this up on the last episode, but J.K. Rowling once said that Fox has only ever been Dumbledore's. He was never anywhere else. And I, I looked into that because that does look like Fox at the end of the movie. Now, <laughs> we have to be honest, J.K. Rowling is changing things. So it's very it's possible that that actually was Fox after all. That she was Credence's first and is a hand-me-down phoenix. Something else uh, that, that Micah brought up was that all the Dumbledore kids start with the letter A. Their names start with the letter A. Ariana, Aberforth, Albus, Aurelius. Abernathy. Abernathy. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> That's a surname. That's a surname. It doesn't work. Don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, okay. Good, good. Um <laughs> But that's that's interesting. And like if Grindelwald's lying, I guess he had to take that into consideration as well. See, you're yeah. definitely a Dumbledore kid because your name starts with an A too. <laughs> There's no proof whatsoever in this film that anything that Grindelwald says at the end is true. Right. And you know, did you notice that the the crypt opens right as the end of Lita's story is like told like the full totality like she finishes the whole backstory um just as the door opens it's so like convenient for the yeah. plot like whether grindelwald was listening right to make sure that yusuf like pretty much everybody gets no more the- time for discussion yep Boom. that's how movies go that's how tv shows go get a phone call at just the right time the person walks in through the door at just the right time you're True. right no downtime at all uh, one other thing that I wanted to bring up, another quote from Dumbledore that is worth investigating a little bit more. It's when they're talking about the Obscurus and he's, they're talking about Credence specifically and why so many people are after him and, and his connection to the Lestranges. And Dumbledore says, that's what they're whispering. Pure blood or not, I know this. An Obscurus grows in the absence of love as a dark twin and only friend. If Credence has a real brother or sister out there who can take its place, he might yet be saved. So, so does, yeah, go ahead. Well, okay, a couple questions here. First of all, does Dumbledore know about his brother? <laughs> That's an important question we need we need answered. It is. It is. <laughs> and on top of that is so let's say Dumbledore knows about this other brother. Why is Dumbledore lying to Newt? Is it because it's just such shocking information that he's not ready to reveal it? We know Dumbledore purposely withholds information until the right time. To me, it's impossible for Grindelwald to know about Credence, but not for Dumbledore to know about it. Ah, yes. That's fair. So we'll assume Dumbledore is lying again. Ugh. 
or or really making it up uh or like grindelwald's really 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 making it up there's not a lot dumbledore doesn't know but it does make sense or it doesn't make sense to me that albus would tell newt that this kid's a lestrange if he had some brother that went missing that he knew about i you know but it is a question that will need that's one of the ones that let's all be real that will need to be answered whether dumbledore knew you know when this when all is revealed well he's talking about a sibling taking the place of the obscurus and and if that happens it seems like the other sibling can live and 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 you know they they use the word twin in there too i believe so yeah you know, that gets into a, a lot more of the conversation i'm sure we'll have later are our credence and ariana twins are you know, is Ariana's Obscurus inside of Credence? And how the hell did that happen, if that's the case? <laughs> uh, but also later on in this book, again, I only got it on read-through. It's when Lita and Dumbledore are speaking at Hogwarts. And mm. Lita says back to Dumbledore when he's talking to her about what she saw uh, as her boggart. He said, she says, not unless you had a brother who died too. And... You know, he responds by saying, in my case, it was my sister, but curious that that line would be in there and directed directly at Dumbledore. Yeah. That is one of those scenes I think we're going to look back on in a movie or two and realize then how important that scene was. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah, it's it's good also for me because he's talking to a student as their professor. Right, like he, it's the it's the teacher student role that we've seen Dumbledore and Harry have. Very few people get the prominence that Harry has with Dumbledore, but Lita has that. Lita has that kind of a relationship. She gets him to be very candid and very personal and presumably truthful in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then just a few other points, uh, different things that I picked up on because I know uh, Andrew and your. Uh, article on Hypable, you mentioned that the the augury's call is is mentioned as being mournful in the script book when uh, Jacob first encounters it. Yeah, and could that be a, a foretelling of the future for Jacob? Sure, but I took it a little bit more literally because Jacob is just coming off of this horrific fight with Queenie. And I think that the Augury's call is more related to the fact that it knows that that relationship may now be damaged forever. Oh, uh, interesting. It, it can foresee what is going to happen between the two of them, and maybe that she goes over to the dark side with Grindelwald. But uh, I'd like to think of it that way for now. Yes. Is, isn't, it a, isn't it a misdirect that it, it's like, wasn't it disproven that Augury's can tell anything about the future? I that they're just weather sensing birds or something. Well, so we had learned through an entertainment weekly article, actually, I think this was the original source, but they got this from WB. They wrote a definition of the augury saying that it's cry is said to foretell death. There may, there may be another source for that, but that's where Chris child says that. Okay. Well, so I, I, I just seems like classic J.K. Rowling foreshadowing to me. Like, first of all, in the movie, it, it's not he doesn't really make a uh, dog or he doesn't make much of a cry. But no. in the script, it is emphasized that he does. Right. 
And the augury doesn't really look that ominous. It's kind of like a goofy looking Muppet. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Like Whose name is Patrick, by the way. It is. That was one of the great things about reading the uh, the script book in the in Newt's basement is that you get all these names for all these different uh, beasts that you really don't get in in the actual film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, I like that theory about uh, Ariana living inside of Credence. That is the one way I can kind of accept this twist because it's J.K. Rowling just misleading us. Oh, wait. So it, instead of the obscurest part being Ariana's obscurus, it's actually Ariana, like her and her obscurus switched or something? Uh, no, so it's, it's Ariana's obscurus that is now living inside of Credence. That's the theory. Uh, that's, cool. okay. that's why Grindelwald is saying um, your family misled you. Uh, Grindelwald says... You have suffered the most heinous of betrayals, most purposely bestowed upon you by your own blood, your own flesh and blood. And just as he celebrated your torment, your brother seeks to destroy you. Bro- that's the only time he uses the word brother, and people are thinking maybe he's actually spe- speaking to Ariana's Obscurus. But does it make sense that Ariana's Obscurus would be in Credence if Credence wasn't, in fact, blood-related to her? Yeah, that is the question. Like, how That's did... the mystery, though. Right. That- was Credence just happened to be nearby when all of this was going on? Uh, that that that's where a lot more detective work needs to yeah needs to happen. Uh, it, it's just weird because I don't think being a secret Dumbledore makes me more interested or less interested in Credence at all. I liked Credence in the first film, and I thought it was interesting and it worked just as being that he's. This guy who is older than you should be to still be able to be both of these things and alive. Uh, You know, him being a secret Dumbledore doesn't really affect for me whether or not I love him as a character. It's almost excessive because I already liked him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a fair point. This episode of MuggleCast is brought to you by Stamps.com. It's not even Thanksgiving yet, and I'm starting to feel the full stress of the holiday season. Between my full-time job and recording and editing MuggleCast each week, I haven't figured out how I'm going to complete all of my errands. Except one. That's because this year, when I mail out Christmas cards, I will be using Stamps.com. Stamps.com is helping me save time by allowing me to print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, and any class of mail using my own computer and printer. I'll be saving lots of time by not needing to travel to the post office during the busy holiday rush. With their easy-to-use online system that's open 24-7, Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time, so you never overpay. And, with Stamps.com, you get discounts on postage you can't even get at the post office. With all that time and money you save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. I use Stamps.com because it takes the pain and effort out of managing my holiday card and gift-giving. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale, without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MuggleCast. That's Stamps.com, enter MuggleCast. We thank Stamps.com for their support. So just kind of rounding out this list that, that I had here, and, and I'm assuming we're going to jump into this prophecy or predictions of, of Tycho Dodonis. 
a little bit later on. It's like a Star Wars name, Tycho Dodonis. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, can you rearrange the letters? Is this really somebody else that you might <laughs> oh my God, Is it an anagram? I'm gonna okay, I'm searching the anagram database. You yeah, keep going. I am Credence Barebone. <laughs> but we didn't we didn't spend much time on this last episode because we didn't know what the predictions were exactly, because none of us could remember it from the film and we didn't have the book yet. So it says Sun Cruelly Banished. Despair of the Daughter, Return Great Avenger with Wings from the Water. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a bunch of different theories here. So the sun cruelly banished would be Aurelius, right? Or is Des- it Corvus? It could be. Despair of the Daughter could be Ariana. Creative. I don't, there's so many different options for these different people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Yusuf in in the um, in the crypt, Yusus, Yufus, wow, uh, Mister Kama says uh, he points to Lita and is like, "You're the daughter." Wings from the water. He points to Credence and is like, "You're the you know." So he thinks he's figured it out. But you're right. Ultimately, there's multiple interpretations here. It, it's going to take some time to decipher all this, and I think we needed another movie in order to be able to do that, honestly. <laughs> we just don't have all the pieces, and uh, more to come. Mm-hmm. But uh, we mentioned the, the deleted wedding scene. Uh, there's also the deleted sewer wall scene with, with Yusuf uh, standing in front of it. I, I think that would have been helpful to moviegoers to be able to see how he was connecting all the dots between all these different people. What does the yeah. script book say as far as what's on the wall? It, it doesn't, doesn't go anything. into detail. That bothers me a lot because even Tina, while trapped there for a period of half a day, would have looked behind her. She's an R. She's a detective. Um, and right behind her is the full – it is a family tree. You can make it out in the movie that there is a, the word Lestrange up there. You would think that she would have some profound new insight after looking at it. Yeah. And there's a couple of other scenes that we saw in trailers and other promotional videos that didn't end up making the final film. So maybe they'll be in deleted scenes. Uh, The last thing that I have here is that in the script book, it says that the fire engulfs Lita. It never says that she dies. (sighs) So... Nolan, again, who's listening live, he brought up a theory in here about, you know, what if at the beginning of Fantastic Beast 3, uh, Lita is actually at Nurmengard, along with the Orans. Imprisoned, do you think? Maybe. But look, I, these fake-outs are a big no-no in movies. Yeah. We already potentially have a big one here with Aurelius. He might not actually be a Dumbledore. We're going to we're led to believe for the next two years we are to be thinking that he might be a Dumbledore. If he's not, what was the point of that cliffhanger? So, and let's say Lita is actually alive. Oh, surprise! She hasn't been dead all this time. They cannot be doing all these fake outs. Maybe one, but I think it pisses off moviegoers. If, yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't play with the emotions of people as cavalierly as it would mean that these guys are doing, these creators, if 
Lita's still alive, if Credence isn't a Dumbledore after all, and it was just misdirection, you know, these kinds of things. Like, you're right. You're exactly, I completely agree. What One or two. It reminds me, and the reason I'm mad about this is because it reminds me what happened with The Walking Dead, the TV show, a few, a few years ago. They fake killed Glenn, and then they brought him back. The viewers were pissed about it, and the viewership was dropping every week after that. You just, you just, there's some things you can't do. You cannot fake out the people who are consuming your story. Cause that, it just, it makes, it makes your storytelling rocky if people can just come back. I agree. I mean, I think it's perfectly easy for somebody of JKR's considerable skill and talent to figure out another way to be clever because there are so many examples of it in the Harry Potter books without actively showing people die who are like show up later. She used it. A good amount in the Harry Potter books, mm-hmm. and not overused. So, and yeah, especially because we've had so many characters in this series already who are not who they seem to be. With all the polyjuice and and other impersonations that have been going on, it's so hard sometimes to be able to follow all the different angles of of who is who. And and I think to your point, Andrew, it it, it is a no no because we have to you know, think about so many different characters at this point that could potentially be alive. It's not just Alita. What about Corvus? There, there's no reason at this point to think that he is actually dead. Mm-hmm. There, there's too many other, uh, you know, sort sort of plot lines to follow that would indicate that he is still alive. And, and it goes to what was mentioned earlier, Eric, you know, the fact that you have Rudolphus and, and Raviston Lestrange that, that, that are actual people that exist in the future that we know about from the Potter series. So there's no possible way that this character can be dead. Mm-hmm. Well, here, okay. Devil's advocate again, real quick, the fire thing with, with it not specifically saying that she's dead because it says she's consumed by fire. Do you think that's because the script already established that when you hit the fire, you die. So she doesn't need to like JK Rowling doesn't need to specifically write the fire engulfs Lita as she dies. It's you a know, fair question, but I don't think the script really clarifies what, what's going on with the fire. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh well no I have to back up further because if one R like steps into the flame and the script writes the the R dies then it's established enough for the pur- purposes of having a script that when you hit the fire you die so in the future she only needs to say the fire hits this person the fire hits this person it's just established you know basically the sc- screenplays are not meant to be viewed by the public in general like right. it just has to show the movie what to do so it doesn't well, yeah one example here is crawl right who is earlier in the movie questioned by grindelwald in in terms of whether or not he's actually on his side and he walks into the flames and it said is consumed so maybe Ah. we're just getting creative here with the words that we're using and maybe she is in fact gone and not coming back but because the that's lesson with him example. was that if you're not loyal, you're gone. That that's right. what Crawl taught us in this movie. That that's why we don't really need to know much more about the blue flame because we saw him wavering earlier in the film. Right. 
And and but was he not an R brought there by Theseus? Is he playing double agent? Is that why he died? Because uh, I, I thought he I thought he had a top hat on or something in the in the final scene. I thought maybe <laughs> does, it was does a top hat. Yeah, only R is made you as an R. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't think that he was a double agent. I don't I could think be so wrong. either. I okay. think he just tried to cross, and he he wasn't fully loyal. He didn't believe in the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys, my anagram results came back from Inga's anagram generator. I typed in the predictions of Tycho Dodonis. Uh, and the anagram that it came out was orthodontist confided chop suey. Oh my God. A Hermione Granger connection. <laughs> and if you just type in prediction, Tycho Dodonis, it comes up with conduced thyroid options. Again, something about the throat, something about the mouth coincided hound post Troy and conduced torpidity shoon. Troy. So, Troy. High school musical connections now. Wow, I can't handle this. It was Greek too. It's the Helen of Troy. Very, very important. Lucas disagrees with you, Micah. He says Corvus is definitely dead because of that family tree. The script makes it even more clear where it seems to imply that Leda's flower kills Corvus. Oh, I forgot about that. But was that her dad? Because she's talking about her dad when that happens. Right, there's like 80 Corvuses in the family tree. <laughs> Well, name. I'm still holding on to the fact that he's alive because you have other Lestranges that exist in the future. If he's the last of the family line, right. then they don't exist in the future. Well, and so also we talked about this earlier, but the unbreakable vow. Why is Yusuf still beholden to an unbreakable vow if this yeah. kid died 20 years ago? Maybe there's another Lestrange that we're going to find out about. The other, the other theory that I heard though is that let's presume Lita is still alive, that because of the relationship that existed between her and her father, where she was the child that he didn't really want, a good way for her to be able to get back at him is to continue on the Lestrange family, keeping the name, but on the female side. And it's almost like a for for Corvus Sr., like a punch in the face or a punch in the gut for, yeah. for his daughter to continue on the family name. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of questions to answer. I don't disagree with Lucas. It's a fair point. but Well, uh, Lucas saw the movie three times now, so we should probably just <laughs> listen to him. On, yeah. On well, what does he make of it? How are there Lestranges in the future then? Yeah, yeah, yeah Lucas. What's, what's your answer, Lucas? This is a live – we said it was a live call-in show, but really it's a call-out show. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're just going to talk crap out. with our listeners. Come on, <laughs> Mr. Expert. I'm going to go see it after after this. We're, we're talking about it so much. I, I feel like I need to see this movie again. Um, and by the way, that book that had that tree was also in the hands of Abernathy and Rosier. So who knows what they did it. to it? Yeah. Ah, some dark magic on it. So – Okay, a couple of things I noticed in the script book. Some of them were the same things Micah noticed, so uh might just be down to a couple of things here. Um, Dumbledore's feelings for Grindelwald. I think I said this earlier in the episode. They are really highlighted by J.K. Rowling. For example, when Dumbledore is confronted by Travers about Grindelwald at Hogwarts, Rowling writes, Dumbledore is looking at the pictures. These memories are agony. He is full of remorse, but almost worse nostalgia for the only time in his life he felt fully understood. Ah, 
Wow. Yeah, that's freaking deep, isn't it? It's deep for a screenplay, first of all. And yeah, the idea that Dumbledore feels deep down misunderstood or not just not fully understood is huge. Yeah. And that Grindelwald is the only character that fully understood him. Oh my gosh, that's tragic. What does that mean for, I mean, if this horrible monster understands you, you must think yourself somewhat of a horrible monster. Yeah. Well, he apparently has treated Aurelius like shit, according to Grindelwald. (laughs) Am I pronouncing his name right? How do you guys pronounce it? Aurelius? Yeah. Aurelius? I always get tongue-tied. This is like my new Deathly Hallows, where I was pronouncing, (laughs) where I was saying hollows for like the first three years. (laughs) People would write in, get so mad. (laughs) You know what um, somebody should do though, just thinking about this. Let, can we pull up the Black family tree and look at uh the the Lestrange side of it? So let's look. If you go on the Wikia too, they've got text versions of the family trees, which I find very helpful instead of looking at the Mina Lima artwork. I also wanted to mention that at the end, when Lita is about to die. It's it's not clear in the movie if she's saying to Newt or Theseus, I love you, because there's some camera play going on where we see Theseus, then it cuts to Lita, she says, I love you, and we go back, and it looks like she might actually be looking at Newt. Well, that was actually on purpose, that confusion, because in the script book, it says she looks toward both Theseus and Newt, who are watching her stunned. Lita, I love you. So yep. J.K. Rowling purposely wrote that to mean she's saying I love you to both of them. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I love Yates's interpretation. I love how it appears in the film because you first see Newt. Yes. The camera is on Newt and she says I love you and then it pans back and it's a further away shot so you can see they're both standing there. That's brilliant because I think the audience has a little bit more of an investment in Newt. <laughs> One of our listeners, Jenny, appears to be in denial. She just wrote in all caps, it was for sure to Newt, exclamation, exclamation <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm sorry, but J.K. Rowling has spoken, and it was to both of them. Yeah, maybe, now, maybe in the later film she'll change it. She'll change what she wrote because she's doing that a lot now. I, I also think love might mean different things. She doesn't have much time here, so she can't say, I love you, Newt. I love you, Theseus. She can only say it once. It means something to Theseus, and it means something else to Newt. Like, I love you in a friendly way, Newt. I love you in a romantic way, Theseus. Or the opposite. She could be telling her fiancé, I love you in a friendly way, and yeah. telling Newt, I love you in a romantic way. <laughs> and you the sad thing is, we don't truly, we'll never know what she actually meant. You know, she is such a smart wizard, uh, a smart witch. Like, she's so intelligent. Why would she, just just hypothetically, why would she feel the need to cast a spell to Grindelwald that would provoke him into killing her? If, it, it doesn't actually, the more you think about it, it doesn't really make sense that she, because she's actively giving up. I mean, that is clearly suicide. It's When I was watching the film a second time, I saw that the flames, It's it's difficult to escape the flames the the few r's that try and apparate get killed while they're in the stupid smoke form of apparition that shouldn't freaking exist uh and you know grindelwald is pretty much controlling who can leave but lita kind of showed her cards in the most obvious sort of way so why would she do that and does she have something to gain from losing her physical form like is this an obi-wan kenobi sort of thing like strike me down and i'll become more powerful than you can ever imagine Mm. So her, I have a question. 
Go ahead. In in the movie, does Lita's spell destroy the skull hookah? I think it just knocks it out of the way. Yeah, I can't remember. There's a lot happening in that scene. Because, yeah. again, I only saw it once, but I'm reading from the script book here. It says, she points her wand at the skull in Rosier's hands, which explodes. Rosier oh. is knocked backward, and Grindelwald is momentarily obscured in a whirl of chaos. Hmm. Okay. In in the film, it just looked like it bounced a couple times, and it stopped doing what it was doing, which was, I guess, emitting the smoke. Well, it doesn't really matter what happens in the movie, so long as J.K. Rowling wrote it in the screenplay. Like, I guess the screenplay that's true. should take priority. If we're talking I just about what she happened. tried to attack him, I didn't think she was trying to attack the hookah. Yeah. And it didn't work, nevertheless, because the dragon, you know, that escapes is is still there after she dies. Stephanie says maybe she thought that her sacrifice would give the Scamander brothers enough time to escape because Grindelwald would be focused on her. Well, maybe, but he made really short work of her. Yeah, it was quick. So that was a really dumb kind of thing. I, I like the idea that, that, that she knew what she was doing and is either still alive somehow, or maybe he only made it look like he killed her by secretly transporting her, and it looked like she was consumed. Because actually, back in the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban, when Harry's doing his homework um, about witch burnings, there were some flames. You could cast a spell that it felt like it was tickling you instead of actually burning you alive, and wizards mm-hmm. would that. So, I mean, that'd be some, like old school magic for it to turn out that Grindelwald was actually just imprisoning them in Nurmengard far away somehow. What, one more thing I want to bring up from my list. Um, Dumbledore regrets making the blood pack in the discussion between Newt and Dumbledore at the end of the movie, Rowling writes that Dumbledore regretted it. Uh, so there's that line, Newt, or there's that line from Newt. It's a blood pack, isn't it? You swore not to fight each other. Then J.K. Rowling writes, bitterly ashamed, Dumbledore nods. Bitterly ashamed. Yes, yes. I love that. Good good, good point out there. Yeah. yeah. That'll probably come into play later on when Dumbledore finally starts talking about all this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I got. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring... Oh, well, a couple other odds and ends. So this is kind of like a reference to the Harry Potter books, maybe... So in uh, in the movie, we see that the Ministry uses owls for communication. Ryan and a couple of others brought up that line from Arthur Weasley in Order of the Phoenix, quote, we used to use owls, but the mess was unbelievable. Droppings all over the desks. <laughs> so Rowling may have been referencing that line from Order of the Phoenix, if so. I love nice that. One. I love that so much. Speaking of classic J.K. Rowling, she's actually been hinting at Aurelius Dumbledore or the Aurelius twist for two years now. So thank you to Victor for pointing this out. On jkrowling.com, she has her answers page. It's like her modern FAQ page. And there's a banner at the top with a photo of her desk. And one of the things on her desk is a copy of of the writings of Marcus Aurelius. So she's been studying this for a while now. How do I know it's been a while? Because I went digging in the source code and (laughs) (laughs) the image was uploaded in October, 2016. So that, and that's before the first fantastic beast movie came out. 
So that's classic Joe hinting at something to come way in advance. And and Marcus Aurelius, by the way, there we got an email about him. I mentioned from Nicole and Greg, classics majors. Marcus Aurelius was a was a was a good dude, and he's very famous. He wrote a book on that is sort of just um, musings, and he was a big practicer of stoicism. If you want to Google stoicism to find out more about it, it's it's some good stuff. Yeah, we'll read that email in a little bit. Um, yeah. We would be remiss if we did not include a Dancing with the Stars update. It's the last one. Well, second to last one, because this week is the finals. Ivana Lynch and Kiyo Matsepe have made it to the Dancing with the Stars finals. I got to tell you guys, I'm home in Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving. My mom gets ABC. I'm going to watch this live. I am literally sitting. I haven't been able to. I don't have cable at home, so I've been watching you know, the recaps and stuff. Mike, are you tuning in tonight? Sure, I'll take a look. There you go. So Mike and I are going to do a watch party. I'm going to live tweet it. It's going to be great. I'll be at um, Crimes of Grindelwald for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, priorities. I'm sure Evie would understand. She made it as far as you as one person can without winning, and and maybe she'll win. You know, it's mm-hmm. up in the air. So super excited. She's actually dancing to a song I know called "Oh, It's Oh So Quiet." and uh, specifically the Bjork version of that song. And she's doing a freestyle dance. So I I think we're all just like, when we started this Dancing with the Stars update, it was maybe partially tongue-in-cheek, but also to support a friend of the podcast. She's known us and listened to us forever. She bought the original MuggleCast Shadows shirt from us, the iPod Shadows shirt. Like Evie's been a longtime fan of this. It's been amazing to watch her in the movies. It's been amazing to watch her... You know, we had her on for our Newt Scamander discussion after the first movie came out. And just seeing her really learn and practice and work real hard at this has been a great joy. Nothing but the biggest congratulations to Ivana for making it to Dancing with the Stars finals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been very impressive. Uh, I know I've said this before, but it it really is. Um, When you know somebody and to see them, you know, kind of take on something new uh like that and just excel at it and grow and develop it it's been very very impressive so um this is a special episode actually not only is it uh during thanksgiving week and happy thanksgiving to everybody who celebrates but this is purposely a two-hour live show it is a direct result of our 777 challenge earlier this year over at patreon.com slash mugglecast we said if we hit 777 if we hit 777 patrons, we would do a couple of things, one of which was this two-hour live show. So thank you to everybody who has been supporting us over at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. There's good things to come there in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, we use your money not only to support the three of us, but to uh, put together cool things like the mugs. And we got new album art which we'll talk a little more about at the end of today's show. Um, But one of the features of this live show is we're going to be taking some calls from our listeners. But before we do that, we have some voicemails to listen to. This first one is just very quick. It's from somebody who called inside the theater. It was the only one I found so far, so I just had to feature it. (laughs) Mugglecast O. My God, the new Fantastic Beasts is so good. I just watched it. I don't know if you can hear, but like the credits are still rolling. Oh my God. Whoa. 
I'm just imagining somebody sitting on the th- on their phone in the movie theater. <laughs> Everybody's looking at her like, "Whoa, <laughs> what's she doing?" <laughs> Freaking out to a podcast. I love it. All right, uh, let's go overseas for our next voicemail. Hi, Modelcast. It's Ryan here, calling from sunny England. I've just got out of seeing the new film, and uh, yeah, my general thought is it's not wasn't an amazing film. It was quite disjointed. At times, it felt like it was jumping left, right, and centre. A um, couple of things I did like. I liked, as a Harry Potter fan, I liked all the nods, the Ministry of Magic using owls rather than paper aeroplanes, as Arthur Weasley said in Order of the Phoenix. Um, the owls became too messy. Uh, like seeing the Philosopher's Stone uh, in Nicholas Flamel's safe. Um, my general thing at the end, I think, I hope, that uh, Grindelwald is lying to Credence, and he's not a Dumbledore, because... Uh, scared to think what that means for um, for canon, and also I'm 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 confused about uh, they kept talking about uh, the Lestrange and how they were the last of their line, or how uh, the boy was meant to be the last of his line. And how did Rodolphus or Rodolphus or whatever his name is, uh, Lestrange, come to be then? Anyway, um, I haven't listened to your spoiler review yet. I'll have a listen to that later. Uh, keep on with the good work. Love the show. Bye. All right. Yeah, Lucas, why don't you answer Ryan's question? <laughs> <laughs> Again, this is our two-hour call-out show. We're calling out <laughs> Lucas Lasky. Uh, I can't wait for Lucas to call in later. <laughs> you guys but, are uh... mean. <laughs> All right, here's our next voicemail. Hi, MuggleCast. This is Lara from Pennsylvania. I just saw The Crimes of Grindelwald yesterday. And I had to crack up when Credence was on the rooftop saying, I want to know who I am because it's been such a running joke on the show for the past couple weeks. And I think you guys have um, hit the mimic of it so well. I was like the only person in this uh, theater chuckling and my boyfriend looked at me like I was crazy. And I had to explain after the movie why I was chuckling so much at that line. But um, I just really like the movie in general and I can't wait for the rest of the series. Thanks. Bye. Uh, here's one about Queenie's allegiance. Hi, MuggleCast. It's Karishma here. Um, I just saw the movie for the first time yesterday, um, and I could literally talk about it forever, but I guess I just wanted to touch upon uh, Queenie's allegiance to Grindelwald a little bit and how it really just makes a lot of sense when you look at how she's treated Jacob, particularly in this film. When you look at Queenie enchanting Jacob, it really reminds me of the theme of control, coercion, and rape with Meropian Tom Riddle Sr. She loves Jacob, but her enchanting him shows that she thinks of him as lesser than her. So this really shows that she actually aligns with Grindelwald's ideology. And add to that, she already seems really easily manipulated and naive and childlike in a way. Um, and I, I think it adds a good bit of um, complexity to that factor, but I also think it's important to remember how the Nazi ideology is a really strong parallel to this movie, and um, Queenie's choice should kind of be criticized uh, as well. Um, but I, I really hope that we see her uh, come back to the good side, but I don't know if that will happen in movie three or five or if it will at all. But, yeah, that's just my uh, thoughts, and uh, you guys are doing great. Thanks so much. Bye. I don't think it'll happen in three, but I think she's going to come back because it'll be a huge payoff. Yeah. At some point, I want to I ask you guys about time jumps because we have 16 years still to cover 
in only three movies, whereas this movie picked up right after movie one. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be some kind of jar at some point. I, I mean, I want the next film to take place ne- like the next day, but there's going to be either a five or 10 year, five or greater year gap between each of the following films. So I wonder how that will affect Queenie's relationship with the quartet, because to us, it's so freshly severed. But Mm -hmm. in five years time, they may all just kind of deal with the fact that she does, as this listener points out, uh, believe in the greater good, just like Grindelwald does. So, yeah. And I was surprised that there wasn't more of a a fallout that was created between the two sisters. I thought that we were going to get a little bit more of that. And there really wasn't a whole lot done on the part of Tina to try and save Queenie. She yells out to her when she's walking through the flames, but that's about the extent of it. And I was just surprised by that. Yeah. Actually, somebody else called in with a similar opinion, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Here's another voicemail. Hey, MuggleCast. Ted from Canada. Just got out of seeing uh, Fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald. And guys, stuff went down. It was like... <laughs> Like, you go in and you think, like, okay, trailers, I can kind of piece together what's going on. And then all of a sudden, new stuff starts going up, and you're just like, whoa, bro. Okay, so my my whole kind of feeling about the movie is very Empire Strikes Back. Like, not a lot of battles, not really a heck of a lot happened, you know, um, magical-wise. But at the same time, a lot of plot that now you're just like, okay, where are they going to go? And I'm excited to see where it is. Love the show. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. I saw an interesting critique of the film that this film is all about the undercurrents, but there's no overcurrents, so to speak. Like there's not one clear premise. It's just everything happening beneath the surface. And that's all going to come up at some point, but it wasn't in this movie. Yeah, I heard the comment that this uh, film doesn't stand alone, um, and yeah. I don't know that I I don't know that I necessarily disagree. At least as far as compared to the first film, the first film, you know, it kind of did a little bit more standalone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, does Ted know the Dobby guy? <laughs> Whoa, bro! Whoa, man! It went down. Here's that voicemail with the Tina comment. Hi, guys. Love the show. I just have a couple thoughts about the new movie. Did you guys also think it was weird that they didn't show Tina's reaction to Queenie siding with Grindelwald? I think we heard her call out Queenie's name, but that was it. Of all the random and unnecessary stuff they included in this film, I think it was an oversight to not at least include a shot of her reaction when Queenie went through the fire. I also found uh, Lita and Nagini very compelling characters, which I wasn't expecting which then makes it all the more sad that they were really underutilized in this film. I mean, credit where credit is due. A lot of that might have just been Zoe Kravitz and Claudia Kim being excellent actresses. I also think it was strange they included plot points such as Grimson, the guy who had to credence, and even Yusuf's trap and eye infections gave that, sorry, gave those so much screen time when they could have spent more time with building up these other characters or spending time with more established ones. Um, and I think Yusuf and Grimson plot could have been merged together, or he could have remained a stalking figure in the background until they revealed or a, a stalking figure in the background until the reveal in the graveyard. I'm sure a lot of other stuff was left up. It was left in so they could lead up to the other films, but there must've been a better way to do it. But maybe some people are right. This was just a two hour long prologue for the next film. Thanks guys. 
You know, here's uh, I, the script book uh, sheds a little bit more light into Tina's character at that moment. So Queenie passes through the flames and Tina shouts her name, Queenie, Queenie disapparates. And then it says Tina retaliates, throwing a curse at Grindelwald. Uh, hmm. But the circle of fire. So she she cares that her sister is just gone, but there's just no time devoted to it in the movie. This is why we need the screenplay, why we love having these screenplays published. We yeah. would be so lost without them. <laughs> I'd like a book that's inside Tina's head when this happens, but I'll settle for the screenplay. Yeah. One more voicemail, short and sweet. Oh, my God. You Abernathy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. May have been the same person who yelled, Nicholas from Al, bitches. (laughs) I don't know for sure, though. We'll censor that. That was a very inappropriate word. For J.K. Rowling's yeah, Wizarding World. I can't believe she said Abernathy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we did get this uh, email, Can Eric, I, that we... One other thing I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Just coming off of all these voicemails, I know there's been talk about you know being the prologue to the next film, about canon. But what surprised me, and, and I, again, missed this on the first watch of the movie. Somebody brought this up. I've seen it on social media. Why was it that the American Ministry of Magic was not referred to as Makusa in the opening scene. Yep. She's JK Rowling is not doubling down on her unique kind of uh, tendencies. Like like she's almost shying away from keeping what she's already established, which is browbeaten with Makusa. the Entire first film. Yes, right. It it was browbeat is the exact word for it. And it opens up and it says American Ministry of Magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you guys, well, first of all, I think it's to help clarify for the viewers that okay, there's the Ministry Ministry American Ministry of Magic. There's the British Ministry of Magic. I think mm-hmm. it's try to it's to ease people's minds in that way to make it easier to understand. But I saw an amazing tweet about this. This is from Angie Han. She writes from she writes for Mashable. She says, crimes of Grindelwald's crimes against canon are obvious from the very first frame when a building is captioned American Ministry of Magic like we didn't just spend an entire movie making everyone say Makuza. It's a small detail, but one that immediately establishes that this movie could not give less of an F about anything that happened in the last one. (laughs) Wow. I read her article, so I give her credit for that. It's savage, but it's true, and... It is frustrating. We were well on this show. We were like Makuza. Is that how you pronounce it? That's cute and funny. Makuza. Mac, Mac USA. Mac, yeah, Mac USA. Yeah, like <laughs> Mac Machine. We're getting money out. Well, the one the one reference to Fantastic Beast One that I found was Grindelwald does say Nomage, Muggle, Nomage. He connects the threads of the the cultural differences there. In so his help speech. us. Well, now that they've switched back to American Ministry of Magic, so help us if they try to use Makuza again. <laughs> it would have been different if, like, Makuza was short for Ministry of Magic USA or something like that. But Magical yeah. Congress, not uh-huh. Ministry. It's it's very much not a ministry. It is run differently. It is a Congress that elects a president. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this email that we keep referencing, Eric, who's this from and what's it say? Okay, yeah, we'll go through this, but this is what the classics majors, uh, Doug and Nicole, have to say about several of the plot twists and characters in this movie. You're going to love it. On Aurelius Dumbledore, 
They say, we believe that Grindelwald is lying. If you look at the name Aurelius, it comes from the Latin word for gold and literally means golden or of gold. How fitting is it for Grindelwald to call Credence his golden boy, uh, especially if he can or will use and manipulate his powers or obscurus? Also, there was a Roman emperor called Marcus Aurelius known as the Philosopher King. He famously practiced Stoicism, which in a nutshell is the belief that showing excessive emotion is no good. In the last episode, you all critiqued Johnny Depp's performance for being rather emotionless, but if Grindelwald respected Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism, he wouldn't give overly emotional responses or emotional responses whatsoever at that. So Marcus Aurelius believed that showing too much emotion was bad. I think this ties into Credence very much because I think Credence is going to have to learn to control all that rage inside him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But he um, he is able to channel it already because of that spell. The spell that he casts? Yeah, and it blows up the mountain. Yeah, he's he's definitely grown a lot as a as a person. So, anyway, moving on. Um Credence the name comes from the Latin verb credo that means to believe. Credence will believe any story concerning his identity because he just wants an identity. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. And then this is the longest one, Corvus Lestrange. I believe that Credence is Corvus Lestrange 5. Firstly, the name Corvus literally means raven. Oh, wow. So that's kind of cool. On a lighter note, I think that Credence looks kind of raveny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very also, much. Yeah, we we only heard pieces of a prophecy concerning the Lestrange family. If we take precedent from prophecies, we know that from the HP series, if you believe a prophecy is going to happen, it will. Perhaps Corvus IV acted upon the prophecy after having only heard some of it. Hmm, who does that remind us of? If so, I believe that Corvus IV taking action to prevent the prophecy from happening, sending the kids to America, actually set the prophecy in motion. Uh, this is a reference to Oedipus in classical mythology, um, which happens. And we know that wizards, young wizards can use magic to save themselves from lethal situations, such as when Neville bounces after being thrown out the window. The baby who appears drowning actually might have used his powers to escape from the water and survive. Um, so, and then also one thing about the first film, when Mary Lou Barebones says she saved Credence from, quote, that wicked woman... In the first movie, we don't actually know who that woman is. Maybe it was Irma. Maybe it was somebody else. But there has to be a surviving Lange in the future of this series to continue the family tree down to Rodolphus from Avistan. That comes up a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and then the one final part. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. In the script book, it does say that the person on the boat with Credence is Credence's aunt. Yeah. yeah okay. So the woman who is on the boat watching over the Credence baby is Credence's aunt? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. So if he's, a Dumbl- if he's a Dumbledore, it also means it's Dumbledore's aunt as well. So Kendra's sister, uh, what's his father's name? Percival. Percival. Yeah, Percival's sister, Kendra's sister, or if Ariana is his mother, then Dumbledore has to, oh, that's why that doesn't work. Ariana can't be Credence's mother because Credence's aunt would be a secret Dumbledore sister. Anyway, anyway, okay, I digress. The end of this sibling. email, yeah, the end of this, Email says, the chick, if it is a real phoenix, I don't think it's coming to Credence at all. Oh, this is the one, but rather to Grindelwald because he has Dumbledore's blood running through his veins. Sincerely, Nicole and Doug. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, cool stuff. Like J.K. Rowling hasn't lost her touch for using names to inform either what we know or what becomes canon of these characters' arcs and journeys. Yeah, and we'll be able to look back at Aurelius Dumbledore at some point and make connections to Marcus Aurelius, the guy that J.K. Rowling has been studying. Like, she bought that book because she's studying him very closely. And by the way, you can buy that book on Amazon if you uh, want to get inside what J.K. Rowling's planning (laughs) so um listeners those of you who are tuned in live now you can call us i left a phone number in the patreon so feel free to call now i asked everybody to come prepared with a question or comment oh and here is one now hey who's this my name is danny um hey danny i want to talk about Hi. I want to talk a bit about Nagini. I was really excited when I saw the trailer and found out that Nagini was first a person. Um, and I really looked forward to finding out her story. But then in the movie, she wasn't important like at all. Also, she is seen as good here, but obviously in Harry Potter, she's bad. What do you think? Do you think they'll include more about her story in the future movies? I think this is one of those undercurrents that I was referring to earlier. They, she has to, She has to explain more about Nagini like like otherwise what is the point of having her in this film I think Nagini is going to try to bring Credence back over to the good side what do you guys think she is certainly his strongest emotional attachment it would seem uh it it kind of annoys me that that Newt really didn't get to interact with Credence and neither did Tina because he would surely have remembered them from when they tried to save him in the subway And maybe it'll help him remember that Graves was the bad guy and Grindelwald, who he's joining, was the bad guy. Ultimately, though, she does appear to be like Nagini is his closest emotional connection. And I think we do need to know how deep that connection goes. And also, who is she as a person? Because unfortunately, Andrew's prediction was right. She is only sort of his emotional support character in this film. Do we think do you think we'll find any connection to the Harry Potter movies with Nagini? Like when how she becomes um, partners with Voldemort or whatever. God, given how little we found out about her in this one, I'm not feeling so good about that right now, but I think JK Rowling has kind of committed to giving us something like that by introducing Nagini. Cause she definitely did not have to do that. So yeah. she's going to have to eventually do it. Maybe it's not through the movie. Hopefully it would be through Pottermore or on Twitter. I'll take it wherever she wants to put it, but she has to put it somewhere. I do, do agree. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Danny. One of the questions that would come off of what was just mentioned was when does Voldemort and Nagini actually meet up with each other? It's not till the nineties, right? It shouldn't be. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's previous Canon. As far as we know. Yeah. Previous Canon. <laughs> So I don't I don't know that there would be any interaction between the two of them prior to that unless we're going to rewrite canon. So it, but there has to be something though that would happen in these next couple of movies that's going to cause her to really go dark side. Yeah. All right, thank you Danny and thanks for your support. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Danny came prepared. She had a question ready to go. Awesome. Here's another one. Hello, who's this? Hi. Um, this is Miranda. Hi, Miranda. How are uh, you? I am doing well. How are you guys? Good, thank you. Good. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm actually at work, so I'm working on getting out to the hallway. So that I can <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, the thing that's been bugging me this whole time is like the timeline. Um, I'd heard the Titanic theory to my husband and I saw it over the weekend and he was like, you know, that was the Titanic. And it really couldn't have been because we did, we did a, a deep dive and Googled everyone's birth dates. So, um, so Newt and Lita were born in 1897 because they're the same age. So it couldn't have been the Titanic because they would have been like 15. So they should have been at school. So there's no way that she could have even been on the boat. And that would put Credence at like 20, or that would put him at like 15 and he's like 20 or something. Um, and another thing is, um, sorry, just like basically ran from my desk. <laughs> um, McGonagall, she's mentioned like twice and she wasn't even born since until 1935. So I don't know. I guess are we just throwing cannon out the window and just like, eh, don't worry about this. Don't worry about yours, guys. Yeah. I don't know. I was wondering what you guys... Well, the Titanic <laughs> thing, that's definitely not happening. And and I think we mentioned it earlier this episode. The screenplay kind of mm-hmm. cancels that out. But the McGonagall thing, you know, that's tough. And I think it, it, people are having a hard time with that. It's definitely Minerva McGonagall. I'm sorry, but it is. It says so in the credits. It says so in the screenplay. I got an email from that actress's publicist. I don't know how true this is. They This may have been the publicist talking up the actress, but she was like, and she'll have a bigger role in the forthcoming films. Oh. oh my gosh. I think, you know, it's possible she's lying. I mean, but the publicist is lying. But J.K. Rowling is stepping into some uh, dangerous territory if she does decide to expand McGonagall's role. It means that no birthday ever works. It means that no birthday can ever be trusted until all of the, can- all of the films stop being made. And isn't the uh, Pottermore team going to have to go back and do some edits? Because wasn't it on Pottermore? Her birthday is like 1935. Because they did a deep dive on her. Yeah. Well, her year is not on Pottermore. um, But you can. Okay. Yeah, you can figure it out by like doing the math between comments that were made to Umbridge and Order of the Phoenix and some stuff on Pottermore. You can you can figure it out that way. Um, Okay. I was I was I was getting angry this morning on Twitter because I had seen that JK Rowling said in December, 2016 on her own website that you, that Akio only works on inanimate objects, but in this movie, he Akio's the Niffler and it works fine. But less than two years ago, JK Rowling said that wouldn't work. What, what JK. Yeah, and then why wouldn't they Akio the baby falling down through the, the water? There right. Why didn't Harry Akio Voldemort? Why didn't, you know, like so many situations could have been resolved. With Akio working on well, humans, and, and Akio, Akio in this movie doesn't even work the, all the way. He doesn't summon it to him; he summons it to the suitcase. So it's just kind of even oh, weirder yeah. that she, he uses that magic in a new, different way. But so, she, she, yeah, between the Akio thing and the McGonagall thing in particular, if they don't have this already, they need to do this. J.K. Rowling's people need to put together a story team. That's vetting everything that she writes. I don't expect J.K. Rowling to remember everything she said and written into canon. But people have to do it for her. The, the brand is on the line here. We need everything to be dependable. I volunteer to be yeah. that guy. Yeah, I, I, they need a whole team. The three of us can do it. And Miranda, yeah, yeah, you can be checkers. involved too. Yeah. Oh, I am a pro Googler. It's I know just, way more than I really should. You know, we here on MuggleCast no. depend on canon. 
and and theories and analysis all over the web depend on canon so it needs to be rock solid and they need to sort this out now and they need to know that like i mean i understand jk she is a busy lady she does not have time to like go through and search all this stuff just like you know george r r martin he doesn't have time to go through and remember everything he wrote but like they need to remember what the fans do you're absolutely right they need to have like they need to have she's she's got to have a team of assistants that you know won't steal her yeah memorabilia and credit card i guess like the other lady <laughs> right maybe that's what happened they had to fire that girl and that girl was doing all the vetting <laughs> there it is all that work out the window yep all right thank you miranda okay. thank you bye bye there's another one hey who's this hello hi who's this Hi, this is Mackenzie from Ohio. Hi, Mackenzie. I saw that the Fantastic Beast screenplay was dedicated to you. Um, well, I truly appreciate that. Thanks, Joanne, <laughs> for getting my email. <laughs> it says to Kenzie, which is uh, her daughter, but we'll pretend it's you. Well, you know what? I also go by Kenzie, so surprise. Are you her daughter? Who are you telling? I wish. <laughs> That would be everything. But I am instilling Harry Potter in my daughter, so I guess. Maybe. There you go. Yeah. No, doesn't work. <laughs> um. Well, thanks for... Oh, I can't believe I'm on right now. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, I just had a comment that I seriously, the whole film was sitting there going, oh my God, if it turns out that there was a time turner used to go back and get Dumbledore's father to have a baby with someone else, I swear I'm going to freak out. <laughs> that has become such a fallback, and I doubt that it's going to happen, but it literally, the whole movie, I could not stop thinking about it. There's like time turners involved that honestly, it's just going to disappoint me, and like I said, I doubt it's going to happen, but I thought it was a funny comment. Yeah. So, I've seen other people guessing that time turners can be involved here. No. J.K. Rowling has learned her lesson with Time Turners. It was a big mistake bringing them back in Cursed Child. Like, oh, if she goes back to Time Turners again, I think all of our heads are going to explode. Yeah, so that was basically my only comment. Uh, other than that, I really wish we were getting more Lita, but I'm not going to get my hopes up, especially after you guys have talked about The Walking Dead, that whole Glenn thing. I just, I don't even know that I can handle it. Yeah, no fake outs, right? So, so, so you, so were you? You previously thought that she might be alive still. Um, I had thought about it because, like you had mentioned, with like Bellatrix disappearing, and honestly, we never know if Lavender died in the movies. It's not necessarily a different thing for the series, but um, I don't know. I think overall, I think she's gone, sadly. All right. Well, thank you, J.K. Rowling's daughter. Very kind of you to call in, Mackenzie. Hey, no problem, guys. Nice, nice American so accent, by the way. Nice American accent. Hey, you know what? I've been working on it. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye. Oh, they're coming in hot. Hey, who's this? Hey, this is Olivia. Hi, Olivia. <laughs> I am calling from, um, I'm calling from Houston, Texas. Oh, I thought you forgot for a second. I was getting a little scared. I did forget for a second. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Um, I, uh, I wanted to call because I had this theory that came to me while I was listening to you guys talk about, um, 
Grindelwald and Dumbledore's relationship and how Dumbledore is talking about being like warning people about Grindelwald and about his rallies and things like that. Um, and so I had sort of this idea that there's a possibility that Dumbledore, when Dumbledore and Grindelwald were trying to do the Deathly Hallows thing and plan their future and all of that, that there's a possibility that Dumbledore actually planned this sort of speaking tour, if you will, that Grindelwald is on right now. And that he is actually the orchestrator of all of this. And so when he's warning people, he actually knows what's coming. And so he's trying to kind of advise those closest to him to, you know, watch their backs and be careful. So it's like Dumbledore was shared on Grindelwald's personal Google calendar and knows what the upcoming events well, are. Right, but like way back in the day, like when they were kids together oh, well, and they were like Google. planning how to, yeah, planning <laughs> on how to like take over the world. So so you're <laughs> saying that Dumbledore may have been like, hey, you should you should tour this idea. <laughs> you should give some rallies. I think that's that's kind of, yeah. that's an interesting idea. I mean, we know that since they were so close, they were in agreement about things back in the day. So yeah, yeah. Dumbledore may have may be responsible for encouraging some of this behavior or for sharing this message with the greater wizarding world. Yeah, right. and, and according to Rita Skeeter's writing, it is uh, you know for a period of time, Dumbledore really did buy into the kool-aid of subverting and subjugating muggles so it makes sense that they would have planned to like okay now that we both believe this how do we spread the word and i so i i think that this is a very plausible idea right and just some of the tricks or some of the like backhanded ways that he was trying to get people on his side or things like that may have been sort of come up with together um and so kind of like he stole dumbledore's ideas i guess in a way and then two heads are better than one now continue to manipulate people with them mm-hmm. or reminds me of what jk rowling uh, wrote in the screenplay about regretting she didn't write regret exactly uh, i can't remember what word it was, was but it, you get the impression that dumbledore regretted making that blood pack with grindelwald and this right. could tie into what you're saying yeah nice. just something something to think about <laughs> awesome olivia well thank you for calling in with that Thank you so much, guys. I love the show. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, who's this? Hello. Hello. Who's this? Oh, this is Amanda. How are you? Good. How are you, Amanda? Pretty good. What are your thoughts on Grindelwald? So, um, I just was wondering what you guys were thinking um, about Queenie. Because I... Felt like she was off kind of for the entire film. Um, and I know that on the episode you guys recorded on Wednesday, I think Eric said that she just seemed kind of stupid, um, which I I felt like that was the case. I felt like she was just talking differently. Um, and I don't necessarily think like Allison is a bad actor. So I was kind of confused about like what her motivations were. And I was thinking that... Um, Maybe Grindelwald got to her sooner than we thought, because mm. he definitely had some kind of weird control going on with Abernathy. So I figured maybe he might have used him to get to Queenie because he probably knows that she's a legitimate and that he could use that. Yeah, because it does seem weird that Grindelwald's assistant comes up to Queenie. Like, why her? 
was right. Queenie already on their radar? What do you two think? It's definitely possible. I, I always found that very suspicious that Rosier just happens across her. Maybe she saw her just prior when she was in the ministry and they were, you know, making their way down to the uh the archives because that's when they go in and switch the books or or do whatever they 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 did there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe she saw Queenie walking up to the desk and then follows her. Uh, but also it's very suspicious activity inside of the hideout with the tea. I know we talked about that last week. Yeah. And, and so I don't necessarily think that Queenie is doing what she's doing of her own will. Maybe there's some, th- there's something more at play here and time will tell, I guess, but uh, it just she does seem off. She seems, re- she seems off even going back to, uh, Newt's apartment, right? Why is she casting? Yeah, why is she casting the spell on Jacob? There's got to be a way they could have worked this out between the two of them without her casting a spell on him. It you was know. for the greater good, Micah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, really. No, I mean people. People find it really problematic. She's basically, if she joins Grindelwald and Grindelwald is a Hitler allegory, then she's a Jewish Nazi. Um. So- <laughs> basically. And, and so it, it, it is uncertain. This is the one question. This is a question we shouldn't be asking, shouldn't have to ask, because it's a question regarding the motivations of one of the main four characters. It should, the movie should just be, it should just be clear, overt. Instead, it's some sort of a mystery boarding on, bordering on just not, the film not caring about it, and actually, I read a quote from Allison Sudol that said the number one thing she was most concerned about was the movie not being able to fully show Queenie's arc and why she's doing what she's doing. Guess what, Allison Sudol? Your worst fears came complete. She said she talked <laughs> to Yates about it. She said she had extensive meetings. Unfortunately, yeah. I think the end result is that we're a little bit lost about her. But I don't think the character's dead. Like I don't think like. Cindy Hughes listening live says Grindelwald sent Queenie the postcard. That's why they couldn't find Tina's name at the French ministry. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. That seems plausible. But, and in his capacity as graves, Grindelwald 100% would have known about Queenie's abilities, presuming, although we speculated whether or not she told the ministry that she was illegitimate. All right, Amanda, thank you for calling in. Thanks for taking the call. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. And Micah, we have to say goodbye to you since it's a work day and two hours of Harry Potter podcasting is enough. (laughs) Uh Uh Uh-oh. Another call coming in. If that's Lucas, see you later. (laughs) You guys can handle him. (laughs) Well, Micah, goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Good luck hey, with the rest of the episode. I'm sure yeah, you good guys talk. can handle Thank it. you for all those notes about the script, man. That was awesome. No problem. I mean, mine were better, but thanks for your Yeah, that's well. true. Well, All right. Bye, Micah. Bye. Take care. Hey, who's this? Hey, this is Sam from Massachusetts. Hey, Sam. Are you Sam K in the comments? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> nice. What, what's your yeah, so- question? Go ahead. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about Queenie um, and... Again, I think Eric referenced her. It seemed like she had lost about 40 IQ points from the first film. Um, I had kind of a... I guess oh, there a, it is, repeated. <laughs> I guess I kind of had a 
kind of a crackpot theory maybe, but um, I kind of thought that maybe the motivation for why she's acting so irrationally in this film as opposed to the other ones um, was because that perhaps she's pregnant. You know, it's been a few months since the events of the first film. So I thought, you know, she's at time with Jacob. Presumably they've gotten intimate, things like that. Um, and now she's kind of feeling this time crunch because we don't know currently what happens to children of muggles and um, wizards in America. So she could be thinking, wow, I really need to get something done. I don't have time to argue with Jacob about this because nine months we're going to have a baby. I don't know if I should even tell him at this point. Um, and I might be in jail. He'll be obliviated and who knows what will happen to our kid. Mm. But my one question is why wouldn't she just mention it because that's a super like that's an important card to play like if you're trying to convince somebody the whole we're going to start a family we're going to have a family is one of the best motivators of all time like i think jacob would have just been like oh okay get it let's get married she wouldn't have needed to side with with grindelwald or even if she did you know th there would have been more of a motivation there yeah i mean i I think that there's definitely uh, you know, an argument to be made for that, but I think there's also an argument to be made that J.K. Rowling certainly isn't averse to secret babies um, nowadays. Well, secret rape um, babies, right? I mean, yeah. if, if, they, if Jacob's under low, if Queenie's pregnant, and depending on how long she's had Jacob under a potion, then you know the baby was possibly conceived under you know duress, and then that we'd have another Voldemort situation where you're unable to love because you were conceived you know through obfuscation. So I don't know, but if if the next film is a five uh, year gap or whatever, as I was talking about before, like the time jumps are going to have to start happening, um, and there's a five year old child running around Nurmengard. We got to be very suspicious about <laughs> who that who that child's uh, parents are. <laughs> um, it's probably Queenie and Jacob. Yeah, so, I think I would just you know. Oh, keep going. Well, my my thought on all this was just that Queenie has found the one, and she's ready to just settle down and uh, marry Jacob. And Jacob rightfully isn't ready for the reasons that he outlined in the movie, and. That's why she is quickly switching allegiance and just seems to be so crazy. She's just, well, I mean, she is, to me, she's under some sort of effect that Grindelwald has placed on her, maybe through the tea, maybe through something else. But she's just at a point in her life now where she's like, I know what I want. I have what I want and I'm ready to put a ring on it. <laughs> It just the point is not wanting something though. The point is wanting something so bad you take other people's consent away to get it. No, it, yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm not. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about her general mood yeah. in the movie. Yeah, I yeah. think I, I think that my my whole theory about her potentially having a child with him and for some reason unknowns to me not telling him would for me kind of justified more of that weird. I'm going to take away Jacob's consent and give him a love potion and whisk him away to Europe. Uh, I just couldn't really think, think of any other reason other than being under that time crunch for why she would feel the need to expedite this process so much and be, I have to give him a love potion and whisk him away like right away. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I don't think Jacob's going to make it through the whole series. I think either next movie either. or movie four, he's going to die. Not just because oh. of the augury, but because it would be tragic 
to lose the one muggle character we have in the series. You know, he's always been in love with the wizarding world since Newt introduced him to it. And Here's... yeah. And, and, and losing him would, would be hard on viewers and the characters, but for viewers, he's just such a great character. So it would be hard for us. And I think JK Rowling wants to do that to us. <laughs> You know the one thing they left out of the film, which I wouldn't want. We already saw Jacob Vision when he's under the love potion. At the end of the movie, he's at Hogwarts. We don't see Jacob Vision again to see if he can actually see the castle. He's legit halfway on the bridge across to the castle. He should see maybe like a ruin Ooh. with a sign that says "dangerous to, to enter," you know, not safe, right? That According is to interesting, Hermione. Well, not only that, but yeah. not only that, but. Um... Newt goes up and has this little private conversation with Dumbledore. Dumbledore asks him for tea, and then they walk off and just leave everyone. What does that, that look like? <laughs> what does that look like to Jacob? I need to know, and I need to know yesterday. Maybe I wonder that. I thought it, I thought it was interesting that Newt heads in. Newt and the Niffler head in for tea. I wonder if that means the third movie is going to start with them having a serious conversation in Hogwarts. But again, time jump, right? It needs to start sometime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think I saw or heard about an interview where Ezra Miller said that the next one is going to have a significant time jump at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though, but I think I, I read that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's too early for us to know for sure about that. But we'll see. Unless there was a recent interview maybe on a red carpet that I missed, but I haven't heard that one. No, yeah, I neither. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Sam, for calling in. Thank you guys for having me. All right. right. Thanks. Bye. So. Have a good one. Bye. So Lucas is a no-show, huh? <laughs> Lucas is at work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he may very well be trying to call. I don't know. He doesn't need to defend himself or anything. Yeah, okay, He's already okay. on the show. <laughs> See if... Uh, take one more. Whoever calls in first. Getting back to Queenie real quick. Mackenzie says, Okay, so I am surprised at how easily manipulated Queenie is because she is a skilled legilimens. Are we to believe that maybe Grindelwald is equally great at occumency and can hide the more hateful parts of his thoughts from her? Or does she know them and agree? That's a great point. It is a good... I mean, she spent her whole life knowing that what people say and what people think is profoundly different. She should be the least able to be manipulated person. Yeah. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Oh, shoot. Oh, thank God. I, I almost quit Skype. I was a split second away. <laughs> hey, who's this? It's Lisa. Um, Hi, Lisa. Yeah, Andrew. You just said that. I'm like, oh my god, I just realized nobody's calling. Um, <laughs> What's up? And I just put, I just put this in the comments. But what if did Credence not know that Grindelwald was grave? You know, I mean, it's like, or that so that if he did, if he doesn't know that, it explains why he's trusting him so much. But why would he trust him? after the way he treated him. So I'm trying to remember the end of the movie. Does the Obscurus fly out before Graves transforms? Right. That's yes. what I'm thinking. But so, if Credence read a newspaper anywhere, but and we know Credence reads the paper, for three months he would have right. known that Grindelwald was captured and that Grindelwald was in fact Graves. That that would have come out. So let's assume... Right. So why would he, why would he trust him at all? Well... Because he he still was showing a big interest in him as grave, so like he was he's still been wanted this whole time. So like I don't know if I don't know if Graves slash Grindelwald did anything that 
Credence didn't like. Well, he told him he was useless and he pathetic he was and so mean. yeah, I mean he the, the words that they exchanged were very fueled. I, I I just think this movie's biggest crime might be just not incorporating events that should have been pretty easy to incorporate, especially as far as character motivations from the first film. Queenie, Tina, and Credence should all be well, well aware of Graves and Grindelwald. Well. Well, right. And the Queenie thing, I just thought about this a minute ago as I'm we're driving in the car. What if Abernathy, Gray, uh, Grindelwald as Abernathy got to Queenie in the ministry since he was her boss? Mm, maybe. Like, uh, like, like so, yeah, so Grindelwald was doing double time posing as Graves for most people and then Abernathy for Queenie. Well, just like at the end, like before he was taken away, he was Abernathy. We know that because that's what he did. So what if oh. it's Abernathy? Okay. Right so after, yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay, because Queenie would be averse to Grindelwald. And, and when she sees him in this movie, she raises her wand right away. But if he was Abernathy after Grindelwald was first captured, became Abernathy and started wooing Queenie. Getting back to, uh, we also have to remember that in this movie, Grindelwald is promising Credence that uh, he can show Credence who he really is. And that's what Credence seems to want more than anything. So that alone might be enough to convince Credence to uh, hang out with Grindelwald. Yeah. But I had forgotten about those insulting remarks that he had made to Credence. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, at first yeah. my mind was completely blown at the end of the movie, and then I started thinking, I started, he's got to be lying. I don't know. What? Yeah, it's interesting. All right, well, thank you for calling in. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Being our last call of the day. Yeah, saved by the bell. Okay. <laughs> Have a good Bye. one. Bye. Um, one other thing I just want to read real quick. I've This is not the first one that I've... Uh, Cindy is not the first person to bring this up. She says, I want to know if anyone spotted the Phoenix book on Credence's aunt's bed on the ship. What? That Phoenix book that Nicholas Flamel and Professor Eulalie and Dumbledore all use. Now, on my third watch, I'm going back later today. I've convinced myself. (laughs) I'm going to look out for this, the Phoenix book. Because if that means it existed when Credence was still a baby... This group, whatever it is, has existed for a good twenty years. Or they repurposed the book. Well, don't blink <laughs> when you when you go book. back to the movie a third time during the boat scene. Just pry your eyes open because I swear you'll probably miss it. That's insane. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. We'll keep an eye out for it. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening today, Eric. Who were um, the Quizich winners this week? Yeah, so we did an interesting Quizits question because people only had like three hours to answer it. Um, the question, or the yeah, the question was, what is the opening weekend domestic box office total of Fantastic Beasts: Two Crimes of Grindelwald? As we talked about at the top of our show, it's sixty-two million dollars, uh, specifically sixty-two point two million dollars. Um, and the winners who submitted this, either most of them did the exact sixty-two point two answer. Michelle D, King of Kings. Franzi J, uh, an ad for Best Buy, um, actually participated in, in Quizits or showed up when I did it. You know how like they sponsored ads, even yeah. on search results now? 
Anyway, Lillian B., Rachel White, and our friend Kyle, the Hufflepuff teacher, uh, was the first to win, and his display name currently reads Crimes of Nifflers. Um, How dare you? Yeah, we play this game on Twitter, although that didn't stop Amber Watson from playing on Patreon uh, with her comment. Uh, She did also get the correct answer. Um, and actually reminded me to go check Twitter this morning. So thanks, Amber, for commenting where you weren't supposed to. And uh, this following week's question for next uh, episode of MuggleCast is, according to the Crimes of Grindelwald screenplay uh, and film, what is Travers' official position at the Ministry of Magic? He says it. He says what he is. Okay. Uh, submit your answers on Twitter. Be sure to use hashtag Quizich when you at MuggleCast. If you are a new listener, first of all, thanks for tuning in. Maybe you tuned in to get our thoughts on Crimes of Grindelwald. Check out the MuggleCast website. You can get our complete episode archive over there. You can jump into our chapter-by-chapter discussions. It's easy to find a particular chapter you might want to hear our analysis on because we have a chapter-by-chapter page. We'd also like if you followed us on social media, facebook.com slash MuggleCast and twitter.com slash MuggleCast. That's how you'll stay up to date on the latest episode releases. By the way, whether you're whether you're a new listener or an old one, we would appreciate a review on iTunes. Um, your review can accompany our new album art designed by Anna. We've been working with her over the past few months. We have album art for the first time in our history that does not use official Harry Potter book art. <laughs> We got right. something made from scratch. It's 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 truly unbelievable, and the response has been extremely overwhelmingly positive. Um, we are all extremely happy with it. I it it's just it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous artwork, and the yeah. justification for it, sort of the byline of we invite people to travel back with us to the Wizarding World regularly, really speaks to uh, or gets spoken to by having the flying car approach Hogwarts. Yeah, and we know. Those sites evoke positive memories for everybody. So we just wanted to create a scene that made people feel good. And it, and it feels good for us to have something that is uniquely ours. And Anna was so good that we actually had her do two pieces of art for us because we couldn't decide which one should be our album art. So you can see another piece with references to the show on <laughs> MuggleCast.com and on the cover art, uh, in the cover art for our Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. Yeah. So lots of original work. And thank you again to Anna. And uh, yeah, finally, just a plug for our Patreon, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. The support of listeners is why we are doing the show weekly. And we're about to crack another big milestone. We're closing in on 900 patrons. Wow. And we'll be doing things through the end of this year and into 2019 that we think will keep our supporters very happy. We have lots of cool benefits in the works if you pledge on patreon you will get bonus audio material you will get a physical gift every year you can be a part of our exclusive facebook group you can also access our recording studio as we're recording and there are 32 people tuned in right now listening us listening to us record on monday afternoon amazing uh, this has been a long episode i have to pee really bad and i think i'm kind of losing my voice (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so probably time to start wrapping it up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll run in with the assist then. Uh, did you give the voicemail number and the mailing address? I didn't. Please help me. Okay. <laughs> the MuggleCast voicemail line, for those of you who'd like to leave us a voicemail, one nine two zero three muggle in the USA or one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. And our mailing address for snail mail is MuggleCast at 4044 North Lincoln Avenue, number 144, Chicago IL 60618. And people were asking about what email address they can send uh you know, emails to, it's actually very simple. Mugglecast at gmail.com. And you can actually use the website as well. Uh, there's a contact form on the website, but if people just want to direct email, mugglecast at gmail.com. Great. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. And I'm Micah. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>